Welcome to Combo Chain, a JRPG Games Club podcast. In this episode, we're covering uh, Near Replicant version 1.22474487139, Yoko Taro's verbosely titled remake of the original PS3 and Xbox 360 games. I'm Paul M. Davis. And I am Alexander McConnell. And welcome back, Alexander. Hey, I am glad to be back. I think the last time we had you was what for Fantasy Star? That's right. Yeah, I I only do bizarre science fiction titles as far as JRPGs go. This is the rule. Oh, I wish there was a whole lot more of those. So. <laughs> uh, me me too. But I guess we'll do them all. Yeah, and this is actually like the game itself. This is a do over. Early on, I did a very poor solo episode about the original near that's about 30 minutes long it was before i was really figuring out what the show was and yeah this is the both the canonical version of the near podcast and near the game probably yeah it's a remake both in podcast form and in game form yeah totally yeah what's your history with the game so my history with the game is another tale of near miss with like what i did before i was recommended near when it was when uh it first came out but the person who recommended it to me didn't know me very well and they told me all of the wrong things to get me to play it. They were like, it is a Japanese game, but it's not like a weird Kingdom Hearts sort of thing. It's like badass with swords and blood and cursing. And and I was like, man, that sounds real dumb. And I was like, hard pass. And it wasn't until one of my friends who lives across the country, he had just finished Automata and he... And he kept braving about it. And I was like, man, this sounds really cool, but I don't have any money for games. And so he mailed it to me, his copy. He just mailed it to me across the country. And uh, I played that through partway into Route B of that game. And then, like, I just lost track of it. And But I, I enjoyed what I had played of that so much that I picked this remake up on on release day. And so did you never play the uh, the original? No. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, uh, you're better off for that. Yeah. It's not like I didn't have knowledge of it. Shout out to the YouTuber, Mr. Klemps, who does like amazing coverage of Yoko Taro games. I've, I watched like all of his videos on Drakengard and previous Nier stuff. So I like walked into Automata with knowledge about Nier, but I had not played it personally. And this was my opportunity to fix that mistake. Yeah, I I did play the original after playing Automata and that becoming becoming probably, if not my favorite game of the past decade, then Mm -hmm. like in the top two or three. But yeah, like dealing with the 
just like sheer mechanical jankiness of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it was developed by by Kavya, which is a developer that's not around anymore. They also developed the Drakengard games. Yeah. And they're they're I don't know. Basically their games mechanically play like the most like C grade version <laughs> of a like platinum game cross like a Dynasty Warrior game. They play like those games if none of the physics or anything worked quite right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, I I I soldiered my way through the original, but I was as soon as I heard that they were gonna remake it with much more accomplished development staff this time and a much bigger budget. Right. I was like I was there day one as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty clear having played both Automata and Replicant that that um, they definitely took notes from from uh, Automata's mechanics. It feels closer to that based on what I've seen of the original. At least I don't know. You can probably speak to the differences more, but yeah, we'll we'll get into that in the development. So might as well start talking about that. The backstory and the kind of development story of the original. Mm. was that the concept was that basically Nier was first proposed to be the third entry in the Drakengard series. But as the project evolved, the original ideas were reworked and the game eventually became a spinoff of the main series. And despite this, uh, Yokotaro continued to think of it as the third Drakengard game. And it really works more effectively as a direct sequel rather than the really bizarre prequel that Drakengard 3 ended up becoming. <laughs> and I could go into that, but yeah, I don't know if it's even worth it because... <laughs> <laughs> there, there are weird tributaries throughout the near Drakengard like cross series i've not played it at all but i've heard that the cell phone game near reincarnation is actually a direct sequel of replicant and has it like like it somehow follows off of replicant in a different direction than automata so i don't know if that's true i like i it's all we have in english is a trailer at this point so that could be just like schoolyard rumors but yeah the, the plots go in all kinds of directions. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's alternative there's alternative dimensions and all kind of, kinds of crap if you get really yeah. in deep into the Drakengard lore. But yeah, development time of the original lasted three years. The game's scope considerably increased from the original conception. And development was had handled by uh, Kavya, who I mentioned uh, provided development support for the Drakengard games. And yep, that's pretty much why <laughs> Nier... I, it has to be said that the original Nier does play better than the Drakengard games mechanically. Yeah, we've had a lot of like retrospectives on the Nier franchise with this game coming out. And it's funny, one of the things I've observed is the people that go back all the way to Drakengard 1 in order to do those retrospectives 
have a very different feeling about the combat in Nier than the people who start with Nier. Uh, <laughs> the, the people who start with Nier are like, man, this combat is pretty jank, and it's a good thing they really upgrade it. Whereas like, the people who start with Drakengard are like, oh my god, this combat is actually combat. <laughs> like, they're like, this is like a miracle. <laughs> And it's worth noting that I've only played the third of the Drakengard games. I think the first two are PS2 games. They are. But yeah, I feel like it's worth talking a little bit because you really only get it in like flavor text and lore but within this game. But Nier is basically set over a thousand years after the events of Drakengard's fifth ending. Mm-hmm. And in the fifth ending, basically, the game's protagonists, Akame and Angelus, traveled across a dimensional boundary to fight a uh, monstrous beast. Oh, uh, quick note, his name is pronounced Kaim. Oh, Kaim, yeah. Kaim and Angelus traveled across a dimensional boundary to fight a monstrous beast. Uh, and after the winning, after winning the battle and killing the monster, they were shot down by a fighter jet and killed. And their introduction of magic to the world led to the magical research that results in the Black Scrawl. Now, that's the story of, I believe, Drakengard 1. Drakengard 2 had very minimal involvement by Yoko Taro himself yeah. for some reason. Uh, uh- <laughs> It, it was basically like this isn't a Dragon Guard Two podcast, but like really quick, like basically the executives at Square just wanted a normal game for the sequel, and they decided that they would make Dragon Guard Two off of the A route ending of Dragon Guard, which is a pretty like bog standard like fantasy story ending and they just continued from there with like bog standard fantasy story stuff whereas like near continues off of e which is like the weirdo ending mm-hmm. <laughs> and it only gets weirder from here baby <laughs> oh yeah totally but it's really funny because like that 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 is like the basic setup for this game for the fifth ending yeah. of a game that came out 15 years ago or longer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, at the time according to uh Taro after the uh, dark story of Drakengard, which I mean is pretty dark from everything I know about it. He wanted to uh focus on more positive themes of friendship and combined effort in this game. <laughs> Which dark and positive are very relative terms when it comes to his games. True. Dragonguard is extremely bleak, though. Like, it, this is very similar to the combat thing, where when people who have only played Nier hear this statement, they kind of scoff and are like, you must be joking. This is like the darkest video game I've ever played, but it, it gets worse, guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Dragonguard is bleak. And so, by comparison, yes, it is is like a game where you want good things to happen for the protagonists at least (laughs) (laughs) which is more than i could say for the protagonists of dracogard who are bad people yeah yeah there's no like outright genocides (laughs) (laughs) yeah no nobody in your party's a cannibal or like a 
a pedophile or like it's dark over there in Dragon Guard Land. It's not good. <laughs> yeah, and another and in another comment that I think is very telling of the time that the original Nier was developed. So Kataro took a lot of uh, inspiration by the September 11 attacks and the War on Terror, and. Basically, it was the idea of there being a terrible event where both sides believed that they were doing the right thing. And uh, he wanted to show that he wanted to show the player that there were multiple perspectives of the same events. And you can definitely see that play out, you know, not so much in the first path of this game, definitely in multiple paths. There- the characters were designed by an artist who uses the moniker uh, DK. Two character designs for the protagonist were created for Nier. They basically believed that the Japanese audience would uh, respond more strongly to a younger protagonist, while uh, non-Japanese audiences would prefer an adult protagonist. Uh, Based on everyone I've ever talked to about this game, I think that they were pretty bang on the money with that. I hear a lot of American fans actually say they miss Papa Nier in the the remake. And I don't know if that's nostalgia talking or like a lot of Americans just like that beefy boy and they wish he was back. I think it's funny because I've seen the same in reviews as well. And I don't know how much of it is nostalgia. And they basically, when they were describing the development of the original game, they basically just changed the appearance and modified a few lines of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it really takes on a much different tenor if the protagonist is the father of Yona versus the brother of Yona. Yeah, that is like the one relationship that I, as I, I never played Gestalt, but as I imagined it out, I was like, this is the one relationship that I, I feel like probably works better actually the other way. Whereas like having seen some of the cutscenes of like Father Near interacting with Kaine when he meets her the, for the first time, for example, I'm like, this seems goofy as hell. But it makes perfect sense with with the Brother Near version. So, like a lot of the character connections, like I think that Emil's connection to Brother Near is very interesting, also, and I'm sure it was good with Father Near, but it it just seemed to work better, at least in my head. But Yona, though that. It being his daughter is definitely a, a stronger connection, I think. I think, yeah, I, I would totally agree with you. I think that for all intents and purposes, I prefer a uh, brother near. Mm. But when it comes to the relationship between him and Yona, it really works a lot better if it's uh, father and daughter. Yeah. So yeah, let's see. A lot of the characters underwent changes during development, and some needed to be cut. There were originally thirteen grimoires. Oh my god! <laughs> with all but three being cut, I can't imagine how they would have fit all of those in. And Emil's character was uh, originally meant to be a uh, female character named Halua. Yeah, Kaini was. Uh, originally- now you're just messing with me. Sorry, Kaine was originally a far more feminine type who uh, hit her violent nature. Mm. And Kaine's character was made intersex since uh, the team felt it fit in with many other aspects of her tragic backstory. I'm seeing a lot of discourse 
I don't yeah. know if you're you're seeing that now about uh, it, but I don't feel like it was necessary at the time, and it has aged even more poorly. <laughs> so it's like I'm of two minds about it. On one hand. It almost is non-existent within the text of the game itself, right? There's not a moment in the game where the characters talk about it, directly at least. Obviously, Kaine makes reference to others thinking that she's a freak, but there are many reasons for that Mm -hmm. outside of her biology. And uh, I, I think that it is just a fact about her and that it informs her character, but it isn't her character is probably the best way that you could do it. But at the same time, I don't know. I, I It does seem it, it, like a risky thing to just throw into your video game, but it is Yoko Taro's. And I think it, it doesn't help the fact that the characters wearing lingerie and the new version of the game gives a you get a i can't think of the word what's it called i i never are you talking about the 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 upskirt thing is that what you're talking about you (laughs) you're you're rewarded (laughs) for like an upskirt shot in the new version which definitely does not help yeah, this seems like a continuation of the running gag with 2B in the sequel, mm-hmm. uh, where she will like huffly sw- swish away from your ability to look up her skirt if you try to do it. Ha- have you done it with the Kaine section? Because no, uh, I, I, I think the animation for it is very funny, actually. She like looks down and glares at the camera, and then... And then threatens you to move it. And if you don't, she kicks the camera up into the <laughs> sky. And it's like a very cool animation. Like it, it is dumb and and childish or whatever, but it is a funny detail to me that uh, she will do that. That is pretty funny. I didn't realize that they had <laughs> that directly. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I, I also think I don't know. I don't. Re- I don't really want to like get into it in too much detail but this is 2021 and discourse is like fucking endless yeah and i think that there are still some cultural differences and you're gonna read those things differently and that's the right of a western audience to read those things differently and also kotaro is a fucking weirdo and kind of a perv but like you just gotta accept that you just gotta kind Um, of just vibe with it. It's fine. There, There is like an apologist reason for the reason Kaine dresses the way she does. But every time I talk about it, I feel like I'm doing the, oh, but she has to breathe through her skin. Like, sure. But <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's so thorny. I don't want to pick it out, pick it apart yeah. too much. But We've already done plenty. Yeah, I don't know. Other than I think it's worth acknowledging. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> also saying that I, God, this is going to sound so like both sides. That's honestly how a lot of the internet discourse makes <laughs> me sure. And by both sides, I don't mean like left and right. I just mean like people who are going to launch like multi day Twitter screeds about it yeah. and other people who are just going to be like, yeah, Yoko Taro is yeah. a fucking weirdo. What are you going to yeah. do? Yeah. 
Like, bottom line, if you like it or you're fine with it, that's fine. If it bothers you, that is also fine. Mm -hmm. Nobody cancel us over this, please. So, yeah, the game was meant to appeal to older players. They basically intended it as, like, an action RPG for an older market than Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, I've actually seen interviews with, I I believe this came from Taro himself, either that or one of the Square executives saying that one of the uh, initial directives was actually to make a Kingdom Hearts for adults. Was like like an actual mission goal at some point. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Though it could also be him like just trolling. (laughs) Yeah, and you can't believe... uh, it it did not have the the cadence of a taro like uh snide joke but it is sometimes hard to tell yeah exactly so yeah they interestingly it was originally intended to be exclusive to the Xbox 360 but they later decided to develop the game for the PS3 as well that's one of the reasons they split between Dad Near and Brother Near. Dad Near, which was near uh, Gestalt, was released for the Xbox 360 because. And all 15 Japanese people that own a 360 got it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's so weird that this was like originally going to be an exclusive, but for the Xbox 360, but. <laughs> Yeah, Automata definitely never would have happened if they'd made that decision. No, not (laughs) at all. (laughs) Yeah, near replicant for the PS3 would have the young lead. The soundtrack uh, was composed by a uh, collaboration between the uh, studio Monica, which was uh, directed by uh, Keiichi Okabe and included Kakiro Ishihama. And Keigo, as well as Takafumi Nishimura from Kavya. Kabe served as the lead composer and as the director of the project as a of the project as a whole. And uh, he worked uh, intermittently on the soundtrack for the next three years until its release. And then the soundtrack, which was not quite as I don't know dynamic as uh, the soundtrack to Automata, it was largely composed of like these kind of like melancholy acoustic pieces and they featured vocals by emmy evans who is a singer from england living in tokyo yeah i'm surprised you don't have the uh doki panic fact of near in here which i feel like is chaos language uh, the composers and emmy evans created a a kind of quasi language for all of the lyrical tracks in the game to take place in, it is uh, kind of a pastiche of multiple languages from our real world. Part of the reason they did this was because having dialogue over lyrical tracks is a signal to noise problem, but they wanted the lyrical like music to be present. So they basically made like nonsense lyrics more or less for it but in a more like structured way you can't like nobody speaks chaos language but like there there are obvious rules to how the different syllables in it work and like this continues into the second games yeah that's very it's it's a really it's a really cool aspect and i think it helps add to the otherworldly vibe yeah and, Uh, and when they talk about it they talk about the idea that because most of the game takes place like a thousand years in the future, like 
how would language have changed in that much time? So I actually, although it's translated for us so that we understand what's going on, I actually like to imagine that when the characters are talking to each other, they're actually speaking chaos language as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, there's even an entire part of this world where the inability for characters to understand each other's language is yeah. a major plot point. So, yeah. You know. Miscommunication is a big theme of Nier. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. As for the remaster, so the updated version titled uh, Nier Replicant version, I'm not even going to bother. But uh, I'm pretty sure that the uh, ellipses even indicate that it's a repeating number. So it probably just goes forever anyway. It's actually, I believe it's the square root of 1.5. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard too. Yeah, it was announced in March uh, 2020 as part of the 10th anniversary's uh, celebrations for the series. Soki uh, Saito returned as a producer, and of course, Yoko Taro remains as a writer, with the role of director being uh, passed to uh, Saki Ito. And uh, thank fucking God, the combat redesign was supervised by... Uh, Takahishi uh, Tora of Platinum Games, who uh, worked on Near uh, Near Automata, and uh, yeah, even though Platinum did not directly develop this game, you can <laughs> really see it in the improvement yeah. mechanics. Yes, but also, and I was aware that there was going to be some involvement by by uh, Takahishi Tora. But uh, I didn't really realize that Toy Logic, which uh, was the development studio, was approached to to work on the actual game, had also worked on uh, Dragon Quest X and Dragon Quest XI, which are both incredibly, well, I haven't played X, but XI is an incredibly solid game mechanically. I feel like you can almost get a contrast here between the near and Drakengard of yesteryear, where <laughs> Yoko Taro was this weirdo that Square Enix kind of put up with <laughs> and didn't throw much money with, and the sort of like post-Automata being a surprise hit approach that they've taken <laughs> ever since. So to, to break off for a second, quick question. Uh, I keep hearing them talking about making Nier a franchise, and I'm going to ask the obvious question at this moment. Do we think that this is a good idea? Making it an actual franchise like Final Fantasy, is that a good thing for Nier? No, I don't I don't really think so. I, I don't either. I, I feel like the smart move is to bank on Taro's name going forward as if he was what like how something can be a Cronenberg movie. Like just be like the next game from Yoko Taro or whatever, and or like how you do with what's his bucket, Mr. Metal Gear Solid. Oh, um, oh yeah, Kojima. Yeah, I think that would be that would make a lot more sense. And I really feel like on top of that, he really needs like the time and space yeah. to develop something. And if they just want him to just start churning out franchises, like I spent some time with that free to play mobile game that mm. he did. What is, what's it called? Uh, Sino Alice. 
And I oh, mean, yeah. there, there's nothing remarkable about that, even for a free to play like gotcha game. Really nothing remarkable about that. It just really feels like him cashing a paycheck. Yeah. And that's not really what I want for this series or for Yoko Taro as a, a creative person who actually makes games that seem interesting to me. I just mm-hmm. don't like the the idea of them trying to churn out a near like clockwork every three years just seems deeply obscene maybe accurate to the themes of these games in a weird way but like also not a good thing for the franchise at all (laughs) no i don't think so i don't think so at all definitely after automata there's places the story could go in a way depending sure. on how you read the ending I, I i definitely think that they could set other games in this universe but yeah trying to f- turn it into a franchise just seems like a recipe yeah. for for disaster and you can already see that they're trying they've tried to do that to a certain degree with even though it's gotten some good reviews like having him do like exclusive near content for uh, final fantasy 14 and whatnot Sure. Yeah, um, no, that that seems on brand, though, after the two near Automata stage plays that he wrote and how, like, secret ending stuff was hidden in the the symphony. There was, like, a the voice actors showed up on stage at the end of one, one of the random symphonies and read a new ending to Automata that is not in any of the games. And, that's what, like... That, that's kind of what I mean by him, like, needing to have some time in the oven to, like, really yeah. realize his best work. For um, real. Yeah. Anyway, um, I just wanted to, to get that out front, that as much as I love near as a property i'm not super crazy about the idea of them turning it into a full-blown franchise and hopefully it is treated delicately because i think that is dangerous yeah i do too i do too and i think that i i, I feel like the franchise is yoko taro and yeah. if he automata was it wasn't a huge hit but it was a much bigger hit than they expected it to be. But that just expanded his fandom. I don't want to see them pull like a Konami and be like, we don't need need the main guy anymore. Let's just turn out like some some cash-in zombie Metal Gear game (laughs) after we fired the guy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't need near survival, thanks. No. Not at all. But it's Square Enix, and who knows yeah. what they will do, for better and for worse. Yeah. You know, I feel like for with Square Enix, for every great success or that they have, or at least thing that I really love that they do, they <laughs> have three other, like, massive, like, <laughs> boondoggles. So, it, it, it's weird to think about this... N- from this way now, but I, I'm actually a little less worried about Nier because I know that the parts of Square Enix that Nier is connected to are actually closer entangled with the, the Enix parts of Square Enix rather than the Square parts of Square Enix, which the Square parts are the problem, the area where they've had lots of problems for a while, in That's my opinion, true. anyway. Like, Dragon Quest is fucking fine, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, Dragon Quest Eleven is phenomenal. Outside of Nier, I can't think of much else like Square Enix content. <laughs> over the yeah. past few years that like 
<laughs> I've been particularly impressed with. I, I liked aspects of Ox Path Traveler, but you know, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, we've got an episode about that coming up, right? In a yeah, weeks, so I'm not gonna. We're you know, here for near. So yeah, the characters were uh, redrawn by Akihiko Yoshida, Toshiyuki uh, Ihatana. And uh, Kimihiko Fujisaka, all three had uh, contributed to the Drakengard and Nier series and were brought in at uh, Taro's request. Yeah. Yeah, and the game includes new story content, including a really oblique narrative link to Automata <laughs> and story content that was cut originally from the original version of the game. It also features an appearance and role of the father protagonist used in the original Western release. I did not come across that. They're talking about the the 15 Nightmares, the DLC content that is in... If you go back to... Oh, yeah. I just yeah. must have... I, yeah, I, play, I played through that. I must have just missed him. Yeah, when you go into that alternate form of the the DLC, you come out as Father Nier, and he's oh whoa, why I I feel really weird, and Grimoire Nier uh, Weiss is just get it together, man. That right, one. I okay, I had forgotten about that. So yeah, most of the English original cast I returned, including Laura Bailey as uh, Kaine, Liam O'Brien as uh, Grimoire Weiss, Julianne Taylor as uh, Emil. And Eden Regal as uh, Devola and pa- Popola. The uh, protagonist had two voice actors. Zach Aguilar uh, voiced the original version, while uh, Ray Chase voiced the older version after the time skip. Yeah. And uh, Yosuke Saito, the producer, explained the new subtitle by stating that the game was not a remake or a remaster, it's a version of. Uh, meanwhile, in a uh, Dengeki online interview, uh, Yokotaro claimed to uh, not remember why he, they chose the subtitle. So. Okay, that one, he is trolling them. Like, he does know. He just did not want to answer the question. Yeah. I can guarantee it. I, based on watching a lot of Taro interviews before the podcast, like, that, that is just him choosing not to answer a question. Totally. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Finally, original uh, character designer, uh, DK, didn't return to the project due to return because uh, he uh, returned to his home country because Koda, who took on the role was nervous to have his artwork being used in a main entry in the series uh, because his previous experience was for uh, promotional material was for promotional media and uh, yeah he tried to really do his best to preserve the original titles mood and tones while updating them to follow modern conventions and also i feel like make them appear a little more in line with automata's design yeah yeah i think he did a good job seems solid a plus
So yeah, do you want to talk about the uh, mechanics? Yeah, absolutely. As we discussed, this is a, a third-person action RPG. One of the things that, like before I get into this stuff, one of the things that really struck me as I was playing through this one in particular is how much it reminded me of The Legend of Zelda. Like specifically when I walked out of the village, I was really struck by how it felt like Hyrule Field. And, and I was like, I wonder if this is intentional, and there are actually quite a lot of nods to Legend of Zelda throughout this game, so uh, I think it was. But uh, yeah, like primarily you're doing a third-person action RPG thing, and the player is frequently attacked by monsters, which include shades, large animals, and sometimes robots. And uh, defeating enemies through melee attacks gives the player experience points, that you can use to increase your power and also gives you money that you can use to purchase stuff. Pretty standard RPG fare there. The main character can attack creatures with either a one or two-handed sword or also a spear. Two of those you don't get until the time skip halfway through the game, though. You start with one-handed swords only, and that's all you get at the beginning because Little Nier is too little for mm. two-handed swords or a spear. But uh, these weapons can be customized to have greater damage and abilities using materials that are purchased or dropped from monsters and scavenged throughout the world. And there are many different varieties of each weapon type that can be acquired. I think we're up to 35. Is that right? Something like that. I think it was uh, 33? 33. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. makes sense that it would be a multiple of three since there are three different kinds. But um. Yeah, and it's also worth noting, I didn't include it in the notes, another thing that you get through combat is the these sort of magic wor- words that yeah. mm-hmm. add to your abilities, not only your combat abilities, but also your magic abilities and what they call martial arts, which is your like ability to evade and whatnot. Yeah, that's slightly misleading. I, when I was playing through in the first place, I was like, what do they mean by martial arts? And it was it took me a little while to realize that they meant blocking and rolling. That's not mm-hmm. really what I think of when I think of martial arts but uh, sure but uh, but yeah yes the words for people coming to this game from automata they're essentially the equivalent of the mod chip system mm-hmm. they're like a, a rudimentary version of that yeah exactly but yeah you also very early on acquire magic spells that you cast through a smug talking book named grimoire <laughs> vice and these spells include projectiles both of the like machine gun and like spear variety, like large shadowy fists. There's like many others too, like spikes erupting out of the ground and uh, like many cool things. And uh, those new spells are mostly acquired from completing specific battles, usually boss battles. If you could go to different places, it would almost seem like a Mega Man sort of thing, but there's it's not like using these spells on specific bosses 
renders better results necessarily. But like I, when I was first getting into it, I was like, oh, maybe that's where we're going with this. But yeah, yeah. And also not unlike Automata, a whole lot of the magic spells and also the enemy attacks are like basically shmup as hell. Which yeah, I yeah, fucking, that's I fucking love. Like that was one of, one of the main cool. first selling points of Automata for me. Was yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh, it's a platinum games hack and slash that's also a bullet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a little side note about the remaster or the remake also is that some of the things with the spells have changed not hugely but they have added some functionality like for one thing there's a lock-on now so like lance is like really great whereas it was only great before and but beyond that there are many small touches that they added to this one like the i can't remember the name of the spell but the one where you call like spikes out of the ground in a line if you do like a rolling move first and then cast it it causes a small like cone of them to come up in front of you instead of a line and uh, there there are many like specific like edge uses for a lot of the spells that you can discover there's a lot of hidden utility in these spells as well that i'm not sure all of that was there before i i think no i don't i i don't I, it's hard to remember, but I don't think quite to that to degree. Yeah, and you can get reasonably complex with the combat, or you can just play it as just like a complete hack and slash, which is oh yeah, my, yeah. This was the approach that I took: turn the magic on to auto and uh, <laughs> yeah, just bash the shit out of everything <laughs> with a sword. Yeah. It doesn't work quite as well in this one, but because I play on PC primarily, I'm using a a custom controller that has paddles on the inside, and I usually map the, like, the basic pod shoot command to the paddle button so that I can just hold it down and forget about it in Automata. And I tried to do the same thing here, but there is actually, like, a mild slow effect when you're casting Dark Blast in in even in replicant like it's not as noticeable as it was in gestalt i'm told but you do actually move slower when you're casting like that you can't just sprint around the battlefield while shooting that's interesting yeah yeah if, you, if you've got magic on to auto it just grimoire wise vice just goes off and does his own thing and <laughs> you're just basically focusing on melee combat yeah yeah so yeah uh, yeah, and uh, in addition to the main plotline, near also includes numerous side quests, which give you extra experience and money, as well as fishing and farming segments. And I will say that a lot of those side quests start off pretty fetch questy. A lot of them do develop some pretty interesting character. Sometimes not even right away. Like sometimes mm-hmm. they develop into something more interesting than they appear. And also, as a strong recommendation for people playing this game, do not do the thing that I did and sell expensive crafting materials in order to make your money early on. Just do the side quest for money and keep those materials because farming those materials later will be boring. Don't do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) 
And yeah, there's also, yeah, there's like fishing and farming segments. I did not really engage with those to a real degree. I have a friend who's playing through the remake right now and fishing mini games are her thing. Like she was mm. like, she got all of the trophies in final fantasy 15 for fishing that you can get. And she hates the fishing mini game in this game, even in the remake. I don't think that they paid nearly as much love to refurbishing the fishing game as they did the combat there's not very much to it if i remember correctly they make you do it at least once within the Ah, story they Um, they do however you don't have to succeed at it if you fail at it enough times they just give you the fish I don't know. It wasn't very. It wasn't very difficult. I failed at it enough times that <laughs> they took pity on me and just gave me the fish. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> There's actually like a, a time lapse card that comes up that says something like twenty hours later, and Grimoire Vice mocks you for it. It only taking you something like two hundred and fifty-seven tries. <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah, moving on to the story. So the game begins with a young protagonist who's tasked with taking care of his sister, uh, Yona, who's uh, suffering from a seemingly incurable disease referred to as this black scrawl. Do, do, um, they, do they, I'm so, sorry to, to interrupt already, but do they know, do they call it the black scrawl during this, this intro? Or is that only something we find out later? I can't remember. All right, it is the Black Scroll, so like spoilers for 15 minutes later. I think they do know. I, I think they do know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it's pretty common knowledge at that point what's happened. Yeah, and I just don't know if the player knows at this moment. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not and, sure. Anyway, continue. Um, <laughs> anyway. Sorry. But yeah, so the game pretty much starts out with this intro where he's taking care of his uh, sister, Yona. They're in this kind of busted up old warehouse space. Yeah, I, I interpreted it as like an abandoned grocery store for some reason. That's oh, interesting. The, the kind of energy. I Maybe it's something about the shelves. I don't know. Candy plays a role in it, so that might have mm, yes. later on. That's true. Candy plays a role in the narrative and flashbacks. So yeah, I could see that. But yeah, basically the entire world has just been like, or so far what we've seen of it is just this totally burned out husk mm-hmm. of a city with this 
abandoned store that this uh, young boy and where this young boy is taking care of his sister who is yeah just really uh, having a hard time of it yeah Um, they seem like they're in pretty dire straits like it seems like the road levels of dire totally and the other thing that they are concerned about other than her having this incurable sickness and their just general dire situation is the fact that there's something called the shades, which are these giants. Yeah. As we are introduced to them, they're just these kind of like giants sort of only semi corporeal monsters would be the best way to describe them. Yeah. So they look like the, like someone took all of the pixel magic effects from another game and smushed them into the shape of a, like a bipedal person. Yeah. They're, they're like yellow and black and like vaguely humanoid in shape, but of varying, like some of them are huge and some of them are tiny and that they don't really look like monsters I've ever seen in anything else. Like they're very unique for sure. Yeah, yeah. They had this almost like rimini quality, like yeah, mm-hmm. where they just don't seem like completely solid, even though they are very much <laughs> solid creatures. Yeah. They're like um, a, a suspension of magical energy shaped like a man for some reason. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of describing it. So yeah, they are uh, beset upon by. A whole crew of shades. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, your protagonist basically has to go outside and fight them off. And yeah. this is the scene in the original game where if you can tell within the first 15 minutes of a game, if you're going to be willing to put up with the like battle mechanics and whatnot, because... It's super breezy in this version and a ton. It it probably goes on a little too long, but it's a lot of just like fun, just like melee action. Whereas in the original, it is just a slog of just hammering away at these things that that just seem to keep coming. There, and there's your there's movement a, is not phenomenal. No. Yeah. And, and there's a huge amount of grace that is provided to this game by the fact that it's a combat is now, if not a joy, at least pleasurable in the hands. Like I, I, I have definitely spent many hours just doing combat in this game and not been like, I could do something else. I wasn't like, deeply rivetedly engaged but also i was just like this is nice yeah exactly even in the new version it can get a little repetitive sometimes it is functionally a lot of fun uh, to play not quite as tight as the action in in automata i don't think like i could just fight in battles in that game all day long. Platinum games are up there with some of my yeah, yeah. favorite genres of games. So. Yeah. The, and, and the big difference there, we didn't really talk about this during 
mechanics exactly, but since we brought up the shades, like I, I think the big difference there is enemy variety. There's not too many different kinds of shades throughout the game. Like there's quite a few for if they only showed up in one zone, but they're everywhere. And so like you end up fighting the same kind of enemies pretty reliably throughout the game. Yeah, it changes it up. It changes it up the most during boss encounters, but mm-hmm. you know, for the most part it's yeah, these kind of like just vaguely humanoid yeah. like hulking shades of various sizes. So yeah, he basically does battle with them. It's not going well. And then seemingly finally defeated all the ones that are marching upon him. There is a flash forward. And we are now in this very bucolic village where the protagonist is living in a nice little cottage with uh, Yona, who's still suffering from this disease. But they're, they seem to be living a pretty okay life. Yes. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, a lot of, there's a lot that's done to unsettle you as far as like title cards go. Because even out the beginning, they're in this like snowy grocery store and the title card pops up saying the year and then it says that it is summer. Like it specifically mentions it's summer. Well, you can clearly see that there's like this flurry dumping on the outside and then the cut to the bucolic village says something like 1368 years later or something like that (laughs) yeah (laughs) and you're like what the hell is going on exactly so yeah like narratively you're not allowed to feel comfortable for quite a while during the beginning of this game which is i i think i i think is mostly just meant to rouse your curiosity and, and make you more motivated to explore which works for me i can imagine another person who would just be like what's all this weird junk that doesn't make sense peace yeah <laughs> And even in retrospect, there's elements that (laughs) when you start to really try and put the whole like near and near Automata and Drakengard timelines together mm. as i've seen people try to do some of it is just craziness for the for yeah it, it's only it's only slightly less folly than the people who are trying to do the legend of zelda timelines where it's like yeah guys don't just stop but i, I know that nintendo indulged you that one time with hyrule historia but it's just an anthology of fairy tales it's the same thing it, it, it's not a timeline it isn't but like there, there is implication of time but like i i I do really enjoy honestly the like vast gulfs of time that exist in in the near franchise because it gives a lot more space for mystery and wonder Mm -hmm. i think i don't know if if that trick will work three times though if near three takes place thousands of years after automata like what the hell would that game even be about or look like? I don't. <laughs> anyway, that's. Yeah, it's really hard to say. Like, Automata in itself has these, like, vast yeah, time, yeah. time jumps. And it's. So we gone, go from so. basi- basically modern day to the year 3000, some odd, and yet it looks like a medieval village? Yep, pretty much. And so. 
Basically, you get by your protagonist. Might as well just call him near. He's performing menial tasks for the residents of the village to gather money for food and uh, provide medicine for Yona. And a lot of these tasks are handed out at the nearby library by a pair of twins named Devola and Popola. To be fair, Popola is doing most of the work there. It seems like Devola is mostly drinking and playing the lute. It's true. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, yeah, they're just, that's like where you where you go to get like what your next quest is going to be, at yeah. least especially Pop- in the er- early game. Popla and her library are like home base for most of the game. And it's interesting to me that many times after you complete an objective in this game, you are given a choice. And that choice is, do I go and see Yona? Or do I go and see Popola? It it doesn't affect anything, but it's interesting. It's interesting to me that it continuously asks you basically: Do you go and actually like emotionally connect with your sister, or do you go immediately into the next part of the quest to solve your sister's problem? Yeah, um, no, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, and it's not doing it. It's not doing it in some kind of like mechanical way. Oh, do you want to fast travel to one or the other? Because there's no fast travel in this case. In fact, when we talk about Vice, I'll talk about a particular like random aside that cropped up between Vice and and Near as they were running around for me that I just love. Uh, oh yeah, no, I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> Has to do with why there's no fast travel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, early on in his journey, the Nier encounters a powerful arcane tome, which was uh, Grimoire Vice. Yes, which like upper crust sounding. Yeah, uh, uh, flying book. Gr- Grimoire Vice is voiced by the incredibly talented Liam O'Brien who may be known to certain members of the audience as one of the members of Critical Role, the number one D&D streaming actual play show on the internet. He's just great. He's just a cool dude. Yeah, he's got he's he's great. I'm not familiar with his other work, but he's great in this game. Just his ongoing commentary. The writing and the performance of it. As a critter, I'll say real quick, the fact that Critical Role has blown up so big made me very afraid that they would recast not only Vice, but also Kaine, who is voiced by Laura Bailey, another member of Critical Role. And because I was like, well, maybe Critical Role means they don't have time for near anymore. But in actuality, some of the recast voices from the remake are actually more people from Critical Role rather than less. This is a critter-friendly game. (laughs) That's awesome. That at least shows that maybe, like, people involved with the localization knew what they were doing. I can't speak for the original Japanese and how it compares, but the writing... The, the quality of the prose in this game is just really phenomenal. 
The prose and the delivery is both very well done. A lot of the performances are excellent, as we'll discuss as we go into this. Before we get too far in, I do want to mention that Nier finds Vice because he's looking for Yona. Like, Yona, like... In one of those instances where you can go and like emotionally connect with Yona, Nier tells her about this flower, which becomes extremely important to the series called a lunar tear. And he tells her that it's like uh, super rare. And if they found one that they could get enough money to cure her condition. And he's telling it to her basically as like a fairy tale, but like... When she hears that, she's immediately, oh, really? And, and, and as an audience member, you're just like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and like the next day she's gone and Nier ends up finding out she went to this like lost temple where he said that the lunar tear was fabled to grow. And instead of finding a flower, they found a book, a sassy book. Very sassy book. you know it's actually uh this is another kind of aside but what's funny is in a lot of the marketing for this game i've seen like uh in facebook ads and whatnot Mm -hmm. they say uh foul mouth the talking book (laughs) that couldn't be any further from his he's very sassy but he is very yeah yeah. (laughs) he's he's, how dare you not refer to me by my full title grimoire vice like exactly it's like you whippersnappers better respect the magic tome i'm thousands of years old and more powerful than all of you put together yeah yeah it's almost like the uh, the marketing team got mixed up about kind of and um, yeah just combined them somehow yeah but once they yeah they once they return to the village they speak to devila and popola and uh, they say that grimoire vice could possibly cure the black scrawl based on an old legend passed down through the song of the ancients yeah which is the song that devil sings in the village and they have that that like really good what's the word i'm looking for like uh, the in-game feature of you have to walk close to devila in order to hear the lyrics in the song if you walk away from her it just returns to instrumental but uh, she tells you that the song that she keeps singing throughout the beginning of the game is like oh it's in chaos language like we discussed before but she tells you that it's like an ancient song about the prophecy of the white book who will defeat the black book which as a fun little factoid the in, in japanese grimoire vice's name is just the white book interesting yeah, they don't rub any German on it like they do in our version. That's, right. That's what Grimoire of Vice means. It means the White Book. But um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they, so, they tell him they they tell Near a fairy tale, much like Near told Yona a fairy tale about how the White Book can destroy the Black Book, Grimoire Noir, and save the world slash end the Black Scroll mm-hmm. slash get them a puppy i don't know like it's <laughs> even even at the time i was like uh-huh <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah but it does set at least for uh the first major portion of the game and the plot structure or mm-hmm. the uh mission structure 
which is that Nier and uh, Grimmore Vice are going to set off on a quest to acquire all the sealed verses, which means that they are going to go to a number of different locations in the extended world. Because they still think they're playing a Legend of Zelda game. <laughs> More or less. Unfortunately for them, they are not. <laughs> One of the places that they go to is the Airy, which is this really trippy, like, village that's suspended up in the mountains. Yeah, the art direction here reminds me of a mist area, like a, yeah. like a kind of riveny almost. And, like, the fact that you, for a, at least a, for a very long time, you never actually see one of these villagers, but you can only hear their, like, yelled curses at you that like ring with a metallic hollow ring from within their weird silo houses is Mm -hmm. like weirdly haunting on top of the musical track which seems like something that should be over a level in a survival horror game or something it's like very spooky to me like this whole thing is spooky but like for a long time nothing scary happens here it's just like a place laden with tension yeah yeah they don't want anything to do with outsiders Mm -hmm. it's very yeah they it's basically just a bunch of catwalks and these very kind of precarious like wooden outcroppings on the side of mountains where yeah. Yeah, there are these like weird little metal pods that everybody lives in. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> their, their attempt doesn't really go that well because nobody wants to uh, interact with them whatsoever. Yeah. But on the outskirts of the area is our third protagonist, Kaine. Yeah. Who lives right right around the corner from the area basically yeah Um, lives outside she's got like a little hut and she is a very clearly seasoned warrior with a really foul mouth Mm -hmm. who basically tells you to fuck off she'll tell you to fuck off a lot but that she uh, the first time that she wants nothing nothing to do with you whatsoever I love um, that Kaine from the very beginning only ever refers to Grimoire Vice's book. She's yeah, just, just, just fuck you book. And, and something, something about that is just very good props to Laura Bailey for the delivery of that. Every time I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really love their relationship yeah. <laughs> the fact that she's constantly insulting him and he's calling her hussy yes yes that's his uh, slight name for her yeah <laughs> they are then encountered by this gigantic shade named hook which begins to attack them right outside of Kaine's uh little shack yeah and Hook's very, very kind of very strange design. It's like this giant bug, maybe with these. So, uh, uh, yeah. So Hook, right, is like uh, what we will find as we go further into this is that that most of the bosses or threatening creatures are named after figures from 
various fairy tales. And so I presume that this is after Captain Hook from Peter Pan. And so because of the snout and, and like, it's a shade, so it's like very interpretive anyway, but I, I've imagined it as being a crocodile actually as being the like kind of initial source of, but it's got like the weird tail thing that it uses for all sorts of stuff. So it's not really based on any particular animal, but that I was like, maybe that's what they were going for is it's like vaguely crocodilian. Yeah. Something like that, but it also has those weird kind of like pulsating mm-hmm. areas that that seem to be like just gestating other creatures and whatnot. So yeah, I don't know. It's anyway, they basically face off with it. It's um, an evil, gross thing. It is a real evil, gross thing outside the area. And then it makes its way into the area. Um, yeah. And they have a pretty tough time with it. It's like that. Kaine is impressed with their abilities once they finally take Hook down. Mm. And also just seems to want an excuse to get out of the uh, area because she has really bad memories there. There is another massive battle in the area. Yeah. We will get to that. With Kaine and Toe, the trio travel in search of the sealed verses and they visit the Forest of Myth which is this small village that's infected with what's called the death dream in which all the inhabitants seem to be living within their dream state. And this is a really cool part of the game because all of a sudden the game turns into a text adventure. Yeah, so this is one of those areas that seems very divisive. Like, I, I think that the death dream is cool as shit. And I've talked to a lot of people that are like, I don't want to be boring or whatever, but maybe I don't want to read this much in order to play my video game. And I'm like, I understand that you are a heathen, if that's your opinion, just so you know. But (laughs) it's so well written. (laughs) Yeah, like, I love the death dream. I love the fact that when Nier and the gang first encounter it, they encounter it by talking to the mayor and how it is like physically displayed is you walk up to the mayor and you start talking to him and slowly every time you push the continue, show me more text, like next box button, the text box gets a little bit bigger mm-hmm. and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger until the the transparent text box occupies the whole screen and at that moment there starts to be a narrator in between the the dialogue bits that the characters realize is there and start reacting to and then very slowly the actual visuals fade out until it's just a black screen with text and then it's on. It's like time to try and escape this thing. And that transition is just very smooth and like very well done. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. And it is it's not like it's an incredibly difficult no, know, this no. Isn't, this isn't I don't know, Zork or something like that. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. The, basically the, 
to get out of it, mm-hmm. you just have to solve a couple of basic riddles yeah. that if you've been paying attention to the text that you've read, you'll already know the answers to. Yeah, there's, there's four Death Dream sequences that you can do. Only two of them are required. I say that, but I think you get one of the weapons from doing the side stuff in the Forest of Myth, and you need that to see all the endings. So mostly the other two are not required. And the two that are absolutely required are stupid easy. They're like, you can walk through both of them pretty easily. There's only one of them that has Northwest, East, South, like old school text adventure style stuff. And even then, it doesn't ask nearly as much of you as something like Zork or Colossal Cave or whatever. Totally. So the other places that they visit on their journey is the Junk Heap, which is this mountainous area, this functional factory full of robots. It's the home of two brothers' weaponry. And yeah, we'll we'll learn more about those brothers later or what happens to them. It's misadventures all the way down. It's yeah. just like lots of people screwing up and getting killed for no real good reason. But hey, <laughs> sometimes it just be like that. What can I say? There's also a facade, <laughs> which is a desert town and is really one of the funniest jokes, at least to me in the game, was that the town is governed by like literally thousands of rules yes. that like break down to the most like basic protocol. Yeah. And, you know, characters or members of the town are constantly being. <laughs> called yeah. out for breaking one uh, protocol or another arbitrary and like contradictory in some cases depending on the real world situations you find yourself in yeah um, that in the like supportive like design works-esque book that only came out in japan grimoire near it, it is specified that the little girl that you meet here fear like the reason that she doesn't speak is because until you own property you're not one of the rules for the town is until you own property you are not allowed to speak oh my god that's the reason fear it doesn't talk y'all <laughs> right I love facade. It's so weird and so unlike anything else. Like it is so near, and I I just really like the characters that you meet in in that town. I, I like the prince of facade. I like Fira. I like uh, a lot of the the goofy quests that come out of it. I think that's probably the most solid design work outside of maybe some of the stuff in the end game. I think is in the desert. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And and one of the things that's really cool about it, another like really cool aspect about it, just as far as the design work goes, is that the everybody who lives there are wearing these uh, kind of strange, like almost monk hats if they covered yeah. their entire face. They're like, oh my gosh, they they have like big Majora's mask energy to their masks. I think. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. 
And they also, when you arrive, they don't speak the protagonist language. So a lot of your early going is just figuring out how you and the residents of the town can understand one another. Yeah. And later in the game, they're able to communicate completely. But yeah. yeah, they find a complicated workaround. And I assume that what is actually happening is that Vice is translating for Nier. And mm-hmm. they just don't want to show it, show the laborious process of that every single time that you talk to someone from Facade. So eventually they just get subtitles. Yeah, exactly. But Vice has to learn. Vice doesn't know yeah. either. Yeah. And then the other major location is a place called Seafront, which is this right. uh, very quiet fishing village. It's uh, bustling with trade. It definitely seems like an outlier compared to. <laughs> These other sort yeah. of almost a, it almost has a little bit of a Super Mario Sunshine energy to it. Yeah, until you look out on the ocean and you see the ruined remnants of an old freeway that's falling apart that's in the middle of the water, and you're like, oh yeah, this is a post-apocalypse. Exactly. This exactly. this world is effed, actually, as peaceful and as quaint as this village is, all of this is screwed up. And I will never He'll never let me forget it. Tara will never let you forget it. <laughs> no, no. But at first blush, it is just this like very bucolic mm-hmm. Mediterranean town. Yeah, it's got a cool vibe to it. I like quests that take me to Seafront. Yeah, yeah. I don't like fishing, which happens at Seafront, but that's a whole other matter. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. I think we discussed that. <laughs> yeah. But- yeah. So meanwhile, there's been word going around that Nier is trying to collect the sealed verses. <laughs> and so in this really creepy mansion that you'll see off in the distance until it becomes like a plot point lives a meal. We'll get to know better. But the reason we go to the mansion is because uh, his butler, uh, Sebastian, has been writing the village seeking for help to cure his master's affliction. Yeah. And and Yona has picked up these letters and misinterpreted it as a pen pal, which is just adorable. Like uh, quick aside, Yona is the cutest thing in the universe. And I love her. She is so like strikes the, the, like the perfect balance of like, fragile and playful and like the little yay that she does when she's happy is so precious yeah yeah they don't give her very much to do but she's very charming and yeah the glimpses of her that we do get to see her for mm-hmm. yeah and um, this misunderstanding with the pen pal thing is just an excellent example of that yeah so. Exactly. And I don't know if we mentioned earlier, she's basically a shut-in because of her Because of her illness. Yeah. Yeah. And you get a lot of, like, really guilt-trippy, like, sad thing, uh, little letters on the loading screens talking about 
how lonely and sad she is and how much she wished that her brother was there, which never failed to stab me in the heart. Good job, Kotaro, once again. I know. I know. <laughs> no. They're called to the... Uh, they go to the mansion to find out what's going on, and it turns out that Emil is this boy that's uh, cursed with the power to turn anything he gazes upon into stone. And uh, serious, like automata vibes when he first shows up because he's got his like eyes occluded and he's just kind of or, or does automata have serious emil vibes <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true is it the chicken or is it the egg-shaped skeleton well <laughs> it's hard to say because is it emil version one or emil version two right because right. a real version two in some form does show up in Automata. So. Sort of, yeah. That's the topic for a whole other podcast. Near and email basically encounter another magical book, which is a Grimoire Rubrum. And uh, they uncover the cure, but it's written in code that they cannot read. Yeah, Rubrim is, uh, like, when she first shows up, it seems like it's going to be a really big deal. And then you just kill her and get information and move on. I sense, perhaps, that this is a place where content may have been cut. I do know, having read some of the short stories in Grimoire Near, that the person who Rubrim was had at least some minor relation to the person who Vice was before he was a book. Oh yeah, I guess I should mention, Vice wasn't always a book. This is not important in this game. But there you go, little factoid for you. Wasn't yeah. always a book. <laughs> Man, there's, there, yeah, there there's lore upon lore in these games. Yeah. And in the kind of like additional media as well. Some of which actually did get reincorporated into this remake. There's actually a lot of short stories that were in uh, Grimoire Near that are now like playable entries in version 1.0 numbers. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, they definitely wanted to like introduce as much of the originally cut content as they possibly could. So Sebastian agrees to uh, attempt to translate the page no matter how long it takes. Now with the email in the tow, the protagonist uh, continues again along his journey. He returns to the village and uh, goes to Popola to see if she can provide any medicine for Yona and is sent to gather uh, vapor moss from the southern gate. As Nier gathers the moss and returns to the shopping district, Emo runs through the gate, still blindfolded, to warn about an upcoming attempt on the village that he can sense. And not long after Emil's one warning, the village is attacked by this large party of shades that just go to town on this village and yeah so basically you're besieged by all these shades on all sides as if it was like attack on titan or something like that yeah it it does have that kind of energy to it for sure yeah it's, it's definitely like an invasion of a previously safe space this is the the part of the moment in the game 
where the dev looks you in the eye and is, you're not really playing a Legend of Zelda game, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It is not going to go the way that you think. Yeah, precisely. If you weren't able to tell that before this. And like all, all the stuff with Emil, like... (laughs) <laughs> there's like huge homages to resident evil and like survival horror in that space. Although I, I have a friend who's playing through the remake right now. And she was like, why did they do survival horror camera angles and then not do anything scary? I was like, I don't know. There's blood in that one sink. And she was like, not scary. <laughs> right. I don't know, man. Maybe Taro is only good at existential horror. I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. He's, he's not interested in jumping out at you and going, boo. No, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's my preferred form. <laughs> So yeah, after Nier and uh, your party basically defeat the Shades, a much larger Shade named Jack of Hearts attacks the village. And this creature you will be dealing with for quite some time in the game. Over and over again, Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. They basically finally end up with it in the library. And yeah, it rampages across the whole town and they, if it seems unstoppable in the first fight, like the, in, in this first encounter, it, it just seems like an invincible foe that you would never be able to beat, which is like really funny once you get to later routes and it becomes like trivially easy to defeat this enemy. But yeah, something about the way that this fight plays out actually reminds me rather than near informing legend of zelda i i I actually wonder if maybe legend of zelda was slightly informed by near because this fight reminds me a lot of the boss fights with demise in skyward sword oh interesting yeah i could definitely see that yeah i don't know nothing more than that observation of me being like oh yeah when i'm playing it in the remake i'm like this reminds me of the demise fight but obviously this one came first (laughs) (laughs) it's true but anyway so the the battle culminates in the library and they uh, manage to trap uh, the shade in the basement meanwhile the shadow lord appears in the library and uh, successfully uh, kidnaps Yona. Everybody's basically just too preoccupied with what's going on. Jack of Hearts is pounding at the doors, and uh, the bar- party is just unable to like keep it sealed away. Yeah, so- it's, it's not looking good for our heroes, kids. Like it's, it's bad times. Sister is kidnapped. Uh, monster is about to eat everybody. Grimoire Vice is having is maybe being like controlled by the Shadow Lord. A lot of bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very dire. Basically, to stop the shade from destroying the village, Kaine agrees to uh, sacrifice herself. And yeah, so the solution is to basically have Emil uh, petrify Kaine in stone, which yeah. will hold the door shut. Yeah. Um, because if she moves out of the way, even for a second, Jack of Hearts will tear out of the doors and kill everybody in the village. Mm-hmm. So Kaine agrees to let Emil turn her to stone so that way all of these people can be saved. Exactly. Exactly. So then we get another time skip. Five years have passed, 
And yeah. Nier's a little older. He's roll, rolling alongside uh, Emil. He's no he's, longer wearing boy shorts. Nope. And now he can use lances and dual wield. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he can use the big great swords. Mm hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Anything that um, requires grown-up muscles. Yeah, precisely. Despite all this, they want to find a way to undo the petrification and yeah. uh, rescue Akaine. So they find and enter this abandoned underground facility. It's below Emile's mansion. Somehow in the original Resident Evil, there was an evil laboratory full of bioweapons underneath the mansion, yeah. That's basically it. That's basically it. Though the vibe of it almost gave me, almost kind of gave me like a fantasy star vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely more bio monster than it is biohazard. But that joke was very funny to two people. But anyway, yeah, it. I, I agree. It does have more of a fantasy star vibe down there than it does like a umbrella nest. Let us say. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it feels, it also feels very, very official. Like the most kind of like modern scientific kind of facility that we've yeah. probably seen in the game and probably the yeah. cleanest yeah. setting. Uh, although, um, although we only get like hints of it, this facility was built by the organization that is re- responsible for Project Gestalt and also the weapon program with Emil and they're they're responsible for most of the like sciency plot elements that are injected into this game. I think the only thing they didn't make is the robots. Yeah, yeah. But we'll learn more about them later. <laughs> um, as uh Emil eventually we got a little bit of uh backstory on him later in the game but when he starts to really realize what had happened which was that he was created as what's called experimental weapon number seven and they travel deeper into the facility and the protagonist and emil encounter experimental weapon number six who we discover is emil's sister and they find out basically that she's the reason the facility was sealed and abandoned yeah she really lost control she's like a feral creature yeah Um, she's just this like feral like almost like monster of psychic power. So yeah, you basically have to go do battle with her and she ends up consuming a meal and this fuses their magic together, which leaves a meal with a uh, skeletal body and the head that is now famous as the mask that uh, Yokotaro wears in all yes. interviews. Yeah, there, so we went pretty quickly over over Emil, and now that he is in his final form, so to speak, I, I, I wish to very briefly camp upon the subject of Emil. I love Emil maybe more than any other character in Nier. I would take a bullet for that boy right now, no question. And he's like... and. An output for a lot of discussion about 
like body shame. Like before his transformation, he's like uh, ashamed of his eyes because they kill people. Like he, he, he goes from literally not being able to observe others to being afraid of people observing him. Exactly. And so like there's like through no fault of his own, his life is like centered around the shame that he feels for the way that he was made. And it is a a very, and he's just a very good boy. Also, he just loves everyone pretty much. And uh, so it is heartbreaking that he is made to suffer because of his existence. And I don't like that. I, I want good things for Emil. He is good. I, I, I agree. I agree. There's a lot, there's a lot of pathos going on there, but I do like that. Uh, Kaine maybe sensing like a similar yeah. bond given her situation. Yeah. She, she also has experienced shame over mm-hmm. the way that she was born. Also and- no fault of her own. And that she's partially possessed by a shame. Yeah, right. So some of it is related to choices she made, but not all of it. So I really like their relationship throughout the game. Yeah, Kaine is like the first person to look out for Emil and be like, hey, don't let people make you feel ashamed for your eyes early on. And it's like the first time you see anything other than the most potent of Sundari energy coming from Kaine. Like, mm. it's the first time she allows herself to be vulnerable with anybody is like being like, hey, it's okay to Emil. And which is why they are such good friends throughout this game. Yeah, Totally. And with this new body, but also additional magical skills, they return to the library and uh, Emil is able to successfully unpetrify uh, Kaine. He also gets like a staff from out of nowhere. I like it, but I've always been like, where do you get the staff from? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) It just shows up. (laughs) Of course, unpetrifying Kaine means that we've got to go back to mm-hmm, fighting mm-hmm. that bastard's jack farts. Yes. There, there's, he's, he's much easier to take down. Yeah. There's a specific line of dialogue while you're fighting jack of hearts after freeing Kaine from the petrification where Nier remarks to uh, Vice that it feels like his sword is swinging faster now. And on this route, that comment is about the five-year skip, that he is older and stronger now. It will take on different meanings on future routes. Continue. Yeah, once they take, they basically take take him down, you would think that the villagers would be uh, grateful, but they basically... <laughs> Want uh, Emil and Kaine out of the village as yeah. well, and no monsters allowed. Am yeah. I right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Popola tells them, or uh, tells them that they have to basically sleep outside on the outskirts of town, and this is a recurring theme. Some scenes here and there. Yeah. of their time uh, just hanging out next to a campfire and uh, yeah. they're pretty sweet moments 
Yeah, there's a nice scene. So this game features like incidental dialogue between the characters in almost a Mass Effect-y sort of way that I, I, I really appreciate that. So the decision was made, right, that there would not be fast travel, but that characters would uh, randomly have conversation between themselves that like in another RPG, like for example, if this was a dragon quest, there's just a talk command in your, in your menu and you would have to mash it all the time to get all of this dialogue. But because this is the 21st century, you just get it when you're running around doing your various fetch quests for villagers or whatever. But there, like after Devla and Popola are like, you can't, your friends can't stay in the village. I'm sorry, you can't keep the strays. You're going through a dungeon and Nier says to Kaine and Emil, I'm going to sleep outside with you guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and they're like, what? Why would you do that? You've got a house. And and, and he's, it's just not fair. Like, you you shouldn't have to. And Emil's like, well, oh, so you're going to do it like a protest? Neat. And Kanye basically tells him, you don't have to do that. Don't be stupid. Like, sleep in your house. It's fine. Mm-hmm. But just like that sort of like, the characters feel just a lot more like real people to me because they just talk about stuff like that. Some of it's not important. Some of it's them discussing things that are happening in the plot at any given time. But a lot of it is just them being themselves. And uh, that goes a long way towards their characterization, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I think the fact that sort of incidental dialogue is delivered while the game is being played it's just like off to the side and you can listen to it yeah it's not like you're having to like say oh okay i want to sit through this like optional cutscene or like many just like list of like text box and whatnot that you yeah. see in like a dragon quest or the tales games and stuff like that um, yes yeah which, that's another great example is tales yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just really kind of like just random thrown off dialogue by your characters yeah. in the middle of fighting and whatnot. But yeah, the downside to it is that while you don't have to like constantly be mashing talk, or if you're not into it, constantly mashing next thing until you get back to playing game, if you do want to hear everything that they say, there have been several times where the characters start piping up and I sprint through a loading checkpoint before I realize that they're talking and I'm like, oh, and then it's gone. And, right. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, man, I really wanted to hear what they were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's a bummer. Other totally random aside, but I, I really love Nier's run animation in Replicant. I am super into that that run cycle. I think that he looks like really like sleek and fast. I, I once described it to a friend as I was playing through it as like the sports car of run cycles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he looks like a badass. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, 10 out of 10. Would run again.
So yeah, basically now the protagonist email and they have a new purpose and a new set of MacGuffins to collect, basically, because they want to defeat the Shadow Lord and save Yona. Yeah. Um, they're basically told that what they need to do is uh, collect all the keys to the Shadow Lord's castle, which can be found in the various locations that we have visited. So this is interesting. I, I feel like in another game developer's game, you would return to the same location, but there would be a new story told there. Whereas in in Near. They, they go, okay, return to the locations you've been before for the second quest. And when you come back there, what you actually discover frequently is uh, fallout, like unintended mm-hmm. fallout of things that you helped characters do in these regions previously. Yeah, um, that's true. And that's very interesting. You don't see that sort of storytelling in video games very much at all. Yeah, and there's a lot more character work that goes on and progression that goes on the second time that you're visiting these places. Yeah. Yeah, so, the junk the junk heap is probably the most pointed version of this, but mm-hmm. uh you see it in all of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They first go and revisit the area uh, the airy because they've gotten a letter saying that the area has opened up for trade. Yeah. And they no longer want to be in their little, like, metal huts. And they already think that's pretty pretty damn suspect while they're reading the letter. But, uh, yeah, so they head on out there, and uh, there is a little market that's been set up. And mm-hmm. there's uh, actually a couple of people who seem to be act- actual legitimate regular people who are selling goods and whatnot. <laughs> and then you talk to another one <laughs> and yeah. he just starts flipping out. He's like a robot that's lost its programming. <laughs> Yeah, he specifically asks you some question about what you're going to do about the shades. And Nier says he always does because he's a genocidal maniac that he's going to kill them all. And when he says that, that's what triggers the dude you're talking to. And he starts like losing it. I think that's I think that's significant somehow. I'm not sure exact. Like I, I get. All right. Questions. Do you think that the reason that this is happening like this is because the Gestalt are trying to possess their bodies? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going what's going on, honestly. I I, I like there I still have like questions about the airy having even played it through five times or whatever. Yeah. And and so because you never see them before this point, like Afterwards, I had questions where I was like, okay, so were the people in the airy replicant gestalt hybrids the whole time? Or did they get attacked and possessed by gestalt, which is what causes them to want to come out and set up this marketplace in the first place? Or it seems like heavily implied that the marketplace is a trap. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are definitely still people because there are scenes basically after this guy starts freaking out, 
then yeah. all these shades show up and right. there are a number of scenes where you're like witnessing or engaging in the horror there's one where you're killing or you're fighting a shade and i can't remember if it's shade's sister or yeah mom. yeah it's like begging yeah, you not a, to do that it was a sister yeah 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 she's i don't care what she is just leave her alone yeah so it does have the cadence of a trap it like the way near certainly interprets it as being a trap in the moment but like near's not always right man like he he thinks the worst of shade activity anytime it shows up so like the moment he starts seeing shades he just starts killing people and <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and this is definitely like the most are we the baddies that I ever felt while playing this game was like, there's definitely a point as like more and more shades pile on and people are like screaming for you to stop that. I'm like, Oh man, are we doing a genocide right now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's very ambiguous. Yeah. And there's other points of that with some of the content and additional dialogue that you see Mm -hmm. in the uh, other paths. Future runs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is definitely, this is some rough stuff. Yeah. Especially that scene where the woman is begging you not to kill her brother who's become a shade. But uh, all the shades start to coalesce into yeah. this giant, weird, I don't know what it, how to describe it. It's, 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 it's a weird ball. It's an orb. It's an yeah. orb is what it is. Yeah. Uh, it's an orb with a big, like, occult looking eye. Heck yeah. You need to just basically fire magic into. Yes. And the guides tell me that this giant occult orbs name is wendy so there you go i presume again a peter pan reference right Mm -hmm. for some reason the area is tied up in peter pan references even though does it mean anything other than i don't know i don't see how this big orb with an eyeball in any way seems like wendy darling other than it flies but anyway yeah it's a little less it's similar to the naming of major antagonists and and automata after 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 like philosophers philosophers. yeah Uh, at least in that game you're given a narrative reason why they are doing that sometimes (laughs) so pascal uh, makes sense but like some of the other ones maybe less so (laughs) the opera singer one that makes sense but Mm -hmm. like there, there are quite a few of them where I'm like, okay, you're named Marx and you're named Angles. Cool, I guess. <laughs> Listen, more kind game, of to you, comrade. Any game that lets me, yeah. <laughs> let me uh, wail on a start bot. I'm fine with. Oh yeah, that's fair. What a jerk. Yeah. So you fight this orb. It's pretty much a, it's a pretty intense battle and it goes on for a long time and you have to attack it from different points because the area is a lot of these just rickety mm-hmm. bridges and whatnot. And you have to navigate different parts to really take it down. And when you finally do, it just creates this great big singularity and more or less decimates the entire area. In order to actually kill it, uh, Emil has to go all the way in on it. And that 
causes him to, as Weiss so eloquently puts it, quote, become the ultimate weapon, which causes him to, like, nuclear explode with magic and... Yes, indeed, does in fact wipe the airy entirely off the map. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty wild. It's pretty intense to see that. Yeah, this is like maybe the second saddest Emil cutscene where he's just like bawling because he he murdered everybody and he just couldn't stop it from happening. And yeah. like near I, I, I love <laughs> I love Deer's line though. Oh, man. It's so fucking it's like just straight up it's like a is a Don Draper line more or less. It's right. Like, I don't remember exactly what he says. Yeah. But it, like Don Draper says something almost exactly like it at some point where it's move on like it never happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nier tries to tell him also that he might have murdered every single last villager in the village, but if he hadn't done it, they would have died. So it's okay, question mark, is the implication is like that Nier thinks that makes it okay. I, I don't think Emil yeah. believes that for a second, but it's clear that Nier believes it, which is interesting. And, and then, yeah, Nier's just, let us never speak of it again, basically. Yeah, continuing with the very sad stories, they next go to the junk heap. Where uh, yeah. they go and they visit the brothers who work on upgrading weapons and whatnot. Yeah. And it turns out that one of the brothers went into the robot factory and was killed. Yeah. It is believed by the surviving brother that he was, in fact, killed by a robot being piloted by a shade we find out very quickly in that was not the case and in fact at least in in replicant version one point numbers it seemed pretty clear to me even on route a what had actually happened i don't know if this was more obscured in the original or not but it seemed clear to me even before things go crazy with the surviving brother towards the end of this quest that he was entirely mistaken that this robot had killed his brother. Yeah, it, you, you do learn that on Route A, but you don't like r- really get the other side of it. No, until, no, no, no. Until a later route. He basically and, and says it, he'll give you like super powerful weapon if you go in and... Yeah kill this robot (laughs) yeah he's very like unhinged about it too there's a lot of like maniacal laughter in relation to him uh like fantasizing about the wholesale slaughter of these robots like he's very Mm -hmm. like very bloodthirsty and very like clearly on the edge of not being sane anymore yeah there as i was getting this quest i was like okay i I do need the key so i guess i'm gonna do your crazy bidding mr man Mm um yeah he's already unhinged and then yeah we'll we'll see even to a greater degree how unhinged he is yeah this guy's had a bad life i don't think we fully mentioned this but like the quest here in the junk heap in the first part involves us finding his dead mom mm-hmm. <laughs> like in in the this exact same factory where his brother died that he witnessed and like you either break it to him that his mom is dead or lie to him and just say that she's never coming back and either way that's going to screw a kid up and then he at least believes that he sees 
his brother murdered in a very similar fashion. And those are the only two people that he has in the whole world. So one can imagine that that would do bad things to your mental health. Yeah, it's understandable where he's coming from. So you go into the junk heap and battle your way through. It's been there before. Just this big kind of mechanical. So many times before. Yeah, yeah. This is the primary dungeon that you grind for stuff you need to upgrade Mm -hmm. your weapons if you're at all interested in upgrading weapons in this game which you don't really need to do like even just leveling up you'll probably get strong enough that you'll be fine but if you want to upgrade the weapons you're probably going to run this machine dungeon like 25 times (laughs) (laughs) i definitely did not do that but it felt like that especially by the time i got to the last path yeah. Yeah. There's not much to really say about it until you get to the end. Uh, right. It's just a big, dilapidated old. You know, it's a big combat dungeon. There's mm-hmm. some on literally on rails shooter segments in it where you're yeah, in. Like, I did that a lot. Anytime there was like a perspective change like that. Uh, yeah. It's a good trick. Me. A good trick that they did much better in Automata. Yeah, totally. But finally, you make it to the robot in question, which has like a real kind of uh, 50s, like Rock'em Sock'em robot vibe to it. Yeah, he looks Um, exactly like that robot. That's very true. Yeah, which I love those kind of designs. It's Iron Giant-y a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We call him Baby. And uh, he lumbers around, and you just uh, take him down. Yeah, you beat on him until he drops his little friend, and then you murder his little friend, and then he dies of sadness. Mm-hmm. Good job, hero! And then <laughs> the brother runs in and starts kicking the damn thing. Yeah, and just totally, clearly has lost his mind at this point. Is just like laughing like a, a madman and just beating on this robot and even near who is along the path to becoming this kid at the like to some degree like we said he it just got done excusing genocide in the last quest or if not genocide certainly war crimes is like all right kid <laughs> that's enough like you got your revenge just chill out please and the kid is <laughs> just gone he's not hearing it he's just just keeps kicking that thing until you leave and you're just like i guess we're gonna go now but you do get the badass big sword you have to come back later you get it that's true yeah i guess all all all's all's well that ends i guess to to draw insult to injury i never used that sword Like, I, I never even equipped it once. I'm more of a spear guy myself. I, I really like the, the Usurper's Spear quite a lot, and also, obviously, the Phoenix Lance, but who doesn't love a Phoenix Lance? Yeah, I used it for a while, mm. but eventually I just gave them up for the single-handed swords, mm. even though they have a much lower like damage output. It's because um, they're faster? They're faster. I just like to mash buttons in my melee combat games. This this is ultimately why I went with the spear because it has reach like the two-hander, but it is also fast like the one-hander. In my opinion, it's the best class of weapon in here. Yeah, I I didn't really spend much time with the uh, spears, but I should have, and I had plenty of opportunities. 
historically also the best class of weapon in real life. But they don't look cool like swords, so we don't think of it in that way. So after all this, you move on to the Forest of Myth. And here you basically uh, have to go up to the tree, which is this kind of like mystical tree. And there's been some kind of problem going on with it. I, mm-hmm. A little fuzzy about what the problem was. It is implied, at least, that the death dream emanates from the tree. So, yeah, yeah precisely. And so, basically, you, quote-unquote, enter the tree and yeah. go into another text adventure section where it tells two stories basically and they seem to be loosely telling the stories of if not directly email and characters that are hmm. very similar to them i uh, there's not they don't match up enough that they can be that but well, it seems to be like these archetypes Typical characters that now, now that you mentioned that, I suppose I do see the the correlations. I I didn't pick up on that before, but it is like a sick boy and a warrior woman, which kind of does map one to one to your party members. The talking book aside, although there's a lot of so both of these memories are connected to the deep backstory of the stuff that happens between the end of Drakengard and the beginning of Nier. All of this is related to the white chlorination syndrome stuff, which we haven't really talked about very much, but like basically the evil boss from the end of Drakengard ending E dissolves in that cutscene, and its dissolved body spread across Tokyo and was inhaled by people and it caused them to turn into pillars of salt if they did not make a pact with a demon god from another dimension, which would turn them into a zombie, basically. So your options were pillar of salt or zombie. It's not really good choices, but mm-hmm. welcome to near. And so all of these, the memories that are presented through the the tree are connected to the the period where the white chlorination syndrome was slowly choking the human race to death. That definitely helps provide some context. And then you're basically asked two questions that are just like basic reading comprehension questions. Have you been paying attention to the stories? Uh, Yeah. The, The second one for sure. It took me a long time to realize what they wanted me to look for with the what is the color of envy question. Yeah, I think the first or second time I got that wrong, I just looked it up on a fact and was like, oh, this is what I got to look for and just sped through the text again to figure it out. Uh, I eventually figured it out through trial and error because I, I I only do facts if I'm literally just like at a complete loss. But it was a little obscure. It took me like five goes before I finally figured out that they were talking about the eyes of the girl that cared for the boy. Which we should point out those things that it asks you about. They change. So you can't just yeah. use the thing that you remember from last time. You have to actually read parts of the story in order Mm -hmm. to answer the questions correctly. Yeah, exactly. And then there, there's a weird bookend where there's a shade that appears, but, Mm -hmm. and near kills it, but 
Yeah. It's just it's just kind of told so abstractly and it's just this afterthought that you're like, "Oh, okay. I guess that happened." And then they come out of the out of the tree with another one of the keys to the Shadow Lord's castle. Yeah. Yeah, it's implied that somehow a shade got mixed up in the tree and was like damaging the memories that it has been storing, I think is the mm-hmm. implication. Right. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, it just it, it just felt like a weird kind of <laughs> Yeah, they just had to tie the shades in somehow and they're I don't know, here's the thing. Here's yeah. the shades. Totally. And then Nair kills it. Anyway, moving on. Yep. Then you head on to uh facade. Yeah. And there's some good news, which is that the king is getting married. Yay. Oh god. And then there's some also bad news that the wolves that are in the deserts around uh, Facade are being led by this, I don't know, shade-possessed wolf or shade in the form of a wolf. And so as you are getting ready to celebrate the wedding, the wolves basically show up. And they kill the bride-to-be. Oh, and the bride is Fira, by the way, the little girl that that helped you in the first half of the game. We didn't really talk about Fira very much, but she can't speak. She's very cute. She's They do a lot of hard work to endear her to you in the first half. And it's just so that they can murder her and make you feel like crap in the second half. That's how Anir do. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, it's pretty much what happens. The king is of course beside himself and all of his retainers he's like, Okay, we're gonna go we're gonna go kill these motherfuckers. Yeah. And his retainers are like, What about this rule? What about this rule? And he's fuck your rules. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. And you set out with the king and some of the army out to this kind of area where the wolves have set up shop and you go to battle with them. Yeah. It's Uh, just like this, like little Coliseum type mm -hmm. battle. I don't know. It's not the battle in itself is not, there's not much to talk about. No, Vice warns you that the wolves are targeting the prince during this battle. And I don't know if this is actually a threat or if it's just supposed to make you feel protective of the prince and to be involved in fending them off from him. I don't know if he can actually die. That certainly has never happened to me. But at any rate, if you kill enough of the wolf pack, eventually the big wolf, who I can't remember his fairy tale name, but he does have one comes down and uh, starts fighting everybody. And then you kill him. Yep. At least you wound him. And then the prince kills him yeah. in a, a, a pretty badass cutscene. Like the, the prince like dives down on the wolf with like his spear out and runs it through the wolf's throat and like pierces through his belly into the ground. And then sad music plays, which makes you realize you probably just did a bad thing because near reasons. Yep. Precisely. And also because, because the, you killed the, the pupper. 
Yeah, well, not only because you killed the pupper, the prince is definitely yeah. He's in a certain grieving. sort of way. Yeah, he's grieving. Yeah. So you've now basically collected all five pieces of the key. You need to travel to the lost shrine and to get to the Shadow Lord's castle, but uh, that requires use of the canal, and the boatsman has gone missing. <laughs> so. You and the crew have to travel over to Seafront to look for the man with the red bag. And once they get there, they discover that a giant ship has crashed has crashed ashore at the beach. Yeah. And you head into the ship and it turns into a cool like side scrolling I don't know if survival horror is the right word, but it's, it's if, definitely it, the closest thing to, you know, just straight up kind of horror. Uh, it it, it is definitely horror tinged. However, what it reminds me of actually, al- although the, the method by which you move is obviously not the same, but the way that it's structured reminds me of a point and click adventure game. That's true. Because you have this like very sheer like side on view and it is a lot about navigating the space and fiddling with things and like finding keys and like discovering clues and stuff like that. There's no combat. So yeah, that that's what the ship reminds me of. Yeah. 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 So I think that's a really good point. So you're going around the ship. It's just you and uh, Grim Grimoire uh, Vice. For some reason, Emil and Kaine don't want to enter. Yeah, they come in and has some sort of problem, and then Emil offers to leave with her, and she says, "Yeah, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I'm gonna go outside." And so they leave. Exactly. So you start uh, you start exploring it, and uh, there's this young girl that you keep on seeing the specter of. You'll see her go into a room, but when you go in the room, she's no longer there. Yes. And so you're basically just exploring this creepy old ghost ship. And in the process of exploring it, you find out that basically it was a uh, ship that was transporting slaves. Yeah. And that that becomes more and more disturbing the more you, you discover. I, I think it's the treatment ki- of the slaves. Yeah, I think it's kind of messed up that the ship's like gold supply is like directly next to the note that says that it's a slave ship. So it's if you pick up the gold first by accident, you're like, great, now I've got blood money in my gold purse, and <laughs> I can't really do much about that. Totally. But they're they're looking at looking for this girl, wondering what's going on. They hear the the man with the red bag has been going there. Can't find him. Nope. Uh, can't find anybody. Yep. Finally, after they're exploring, there's a bunch of shaking, and the ship starts breaking apart. So you have to run out and. Turns out that the uh, young girl, whose name is Louise, is actually this really powerful shade. And with these giant tentacles. And she's been killing and eating everyone who comes to the boat. Like she killed and presumably killed and ate everyone on the boat first. And Mm. then has since been killing and eating any of the villagers from the town that have come to investigate the boat. Exactly. uh, For the most part. Exactly. 
and they they discover this to a certain degree because they right before the ship starts breaking apart they discover what's basically like an avatar it's just covered in like dead and mutilated bodies which is yeah by far like the goriest thing in, in the game although those bodies were extremely whole considering she's been eating them anyway it's fine they wanted us to know what we were looking at. <laughs> yeah, totally. This is a pretty great fight. Yeah, presumably. I think that the near team designed this encounter, I would imagine. So it, it has to have been designed post-Automata. I'd be disappointed if it wasn't the best designed fight in this game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's really engaging. And you basically have to like do battle with her like in a number of different ways you're using your magic against you're fighting off tentacles you're using your magic against her head there's Mm -hmm. a point when you get her down to a certain level where you have to basically run up her tentacles and then hack away at her her head that only happened for me on later runs Mm -hmm. um it doesn't uh, happen in every encounter no. And, and and at first I thought that I had done something wrong in the earlier ones, but it seems like from the reporting that I've heard around that it's not actually possible to break that, how there will be like fracture points that you've got to hit and they have that like circular like mm-hmm. thing you've got to deplete. It's not actually possible to deplete that circle on the first go at the very least. Or so I've heard. I certainly didn't. I got wasted by that attack instead, which leads to a little cutscene with the postman. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, finally you defeat her and basically discover that the boatsman's been killed and consumed by Louise. So you return to uh, Popola to deliver the tragic news. And in a funny turnaround, she's just basically like, all right, we'll find someone else to... uh, to uh, how, get you to of the canal how how sad this is going to be for you may be down to how much of the side content you've done up to this point because there are quite a few side quests that involve the red bag man and his apple loving wife um yeah and they're constant bickering yeah so i knew them as characters by the point that i discovered he was dead and i was pretty sad to have to tell his wife that her husband was gone again they give you the option to lie about it and i will say there is no point in this game where lying to someone about the fact that their loved one is dead ever does anything which i think is a choice it doesn't make it it does not make it better and it does not like change like that nobody ever finds out you lied to them and gets mad at you or anything it's just it's just whether you personally can deal with telling them the truth or not seems yeah totally i i always went for telling them the truth same yeah i always felt really i was like man i can't lie to them about this that seems really terrible although i did experiment with lying to at least the the red bag man's wife since you have to do this so many times i was like let's just see what happens basically near if you choose that option just tells her that he's run off for good with somebody else and she Mm -hmm. it still results in her like breaking down into tears just like she does if you tell her that he's dead but but yeah that's all that's the only real difference as far as story goes yeah 
Yeah. And this story is actually much more tragic, but you won't find out about that until <laughs> well, we'll a later path. We'll talk about that in the endings portion, yeah. Yeah. So Nier and your whole party are finally able to travel to the Lost Shrine and onto the Shadow Lord's castle. You get into the castle, and man, what is there to say? It's a bunch of it's a bunch of set pieces. Yeah. It's weird because certain ways it's it's a Zelda dungeon because there's mm-hmm. these like block puzzle parts, but yeah. they're very simple. Fortunately, mm-hmm. because I, I am terrible at spatial puzzles. And oh, so, yeah. 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 That's another thing. Like near love Sokoban, like they're behind the in in a seaport. There is actually a straight up Sokoban puzzle that you can do behind the the postmaster's house to get a black pearl for free. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Which I did just because I, I block, block slidey puzzles and I was just like, oh, this is relaxing. And I got a black pearl for my troubles. Nice. Yeah, they're basically they're making their way through there. There's a couple of pretty cool set pieces. One where you walk into this room and all of these kind of spectral figures are dancing a waltz. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It was unclear to me like what this was implying eventually they all turn into shades and you have to fight them, but it's clear on future routes. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's, it's really, it's a cool juxtaposition. You you don't expect to, after going through this like castle dungeon, these like waltzing ghosts and whatnot. So you fight that battle and then you come across this goddamn bullshade that <laughs> will not die no matter what you do. Nope. And probably the most irritating segment in the game to me is that eventually you're like, okay, we got, we got you. Every time we think we take this guy down, he comes back to life. Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we got to run, and so you've got uh, to basically run upstairs these stairs that are covered by boxes and not get stampeded by the bull, which is an instant get, kill. Yeah, it's an instant kill. You get, get game over, and yeah, it just sends you back to the beginning of it. But when uh, you do it five or six times, it gets real old, which once I got it down, I I never had to do this segment more than once. But that first one was like, whoo, that was rough. It was uh, I died at least five or six times, at least. I I, I died about five or six times every single run. (laughs) Oh, every single run. Really? Yeah. I I just memorized what I did successfully the first time. And I just did that every time. So I just, my memory isn't that good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So finally you get away from him, presumably. Then he bashes on in and all of our buddies from a facade show up apropos of nothing. And basically tell Nier to just continue on in this quest to get Yona and that they are going to take on the on the bowl. Yeah. The, and the, the prince essentially tells you that he owes you one for helping him kill the wolf and also 
points out that the Shadow Lord threatens Facade as well. And so it's in, not only does he owe you one, but also it's in the best interest of his kingdom for you to kill the Shadow Lord, he thinks at least. Yeah. Yeah. But it's real clear that they are not going to win this battle. We didn't win the battle and we're better than these guys for sure. So this is definitely a last stand. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, Nier Nier doesn't want to go, but the rest of the party kind of drags him out of the room. Yeah. And this is where he has a bit of a breakdown. And the first part of his rolling breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. It feels some level of regret that these people are basically sacrificing themselves for him and his mission. Yeah. These people are not shades, so therefore Nier thinks it is sad that they are dying rather than just and good. (laughs) So they fight their way farther into the castle, and then they encounter, who would have guessed, our old friends Devola and Popola. Yep. Who basically attempt to stop them from continuing, and they say that they should just head back to the village. And you're like, hell no. And so you do battle with them and that all kind of ends at a standstill. And you venture through a little bit more of the castle and come across them again and have a much more intense battle with them. Yes. And... It's hard for me to remember exactly which run, but they basically, they give you some files that you will have to later look at that. Oh, I did not wait. I I paused the game and read them (laughs) immediately. (laughs) Like, like they were were like boss battle begin. And I'm like, no, hang on. I got to read this. And they're just backstory on project Gestalt. Yes. Yeah. So Project Gestalt, now that they have told us, we will tell y'all, I suppose, just for the sake of explaining things later so it does make some sort of sense, right? So as, like I said, with white chlorination chlorination syndrome previously, the human race was dying and nobody could figure out how to stop it. So basically what they did was they used magic that they had harnessed from the corpse of the dragon from the ending of Drakengard ending E to create magic in our really real world. And they use that magic to separate the souls from the bodies of the surviving humans and to keep them safe. And then they started creating replicants, which are Mm -hmm. human body shells without souls. Yep. And they were going to recombine the soul to those bodies once everyone infected with white chlorination syndrome had died out and it was not possible for humans to be reinfected. They would then reincorporate the souls with the replicants and thus humanity survives white chlorination syndrome. Huzzah. That was the plan. The biggest problem with that plan, though is that replicants started developing sapience, like sentience of their own, and that caused all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, who would have imagined that (laughs) that this plan would have gone badly? 
But, well, who would have imagined that their flesh dolls would have started growing their own souls? I don't like that is definitely an unforeseen consequence of their actions. The re- replicants, once they start trying to reintegrate them with their gestalts, will reject them. And, and that is what causes Shades to go berserk and be violent. And it is also what causes the Black Scroll. Because once your shade goes berserk, the black scrawl starts appearing on its related replicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that's how all that happens. That's what all of that stuff in this game means. You're yep. welcome. That's pretty much it. But also, is it the first run where Devla and Popla reveal here that they're basically androids that, uh, have, been, yeah. that have been created and they've been around for Two, th- yes. thousands of years? To yeah. basically shepherd humanity and, back into existence. Yeah. Exactly. Carry out Project Assault. After you all this kind of information in a dump, you do battle with them again. And you manage to kill uh, Devla, which causes Popola to basically go completely berserk. Yeah. Uh, the infamous uh, nobody ever stops line. Yeah. Which, uh, it, amongst near fans, like you can just look at somebody else and just say nobody ever stops, and the other person will just nod, like we all know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. The only way to apparently defeat Popola, as she's in this super form of <laughs> madness, yeah. is for Emil to use every bit of his bat magic to subdue Popola. And he sacrifices himself in the process. Yeah, this is is a very sad scene. For some reason, it did not strike me during my Route A run. I was just like, oh, that's sad. But Mm -hmm. on every subsequent run, I have cried when Emil sacrifices himself. Yeah, it's weird. I had the same kind of reaction on the first run. I was just kind of, I guess that's something that happened. But I feel... uh, Part of me felt like well, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's completely over for Emil yet. <laughs> yeah, and those but, of us who played Automata first knew that for a fact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still um, extremely touching what he does because he basically says that he says it's okay. Like he basically says, "I always felt ashamed before I met you guys, and you guys are what made me feel okay about myself." So dying for you is worth it. Yeah, which is very sad. Obviously, Um, I'm a little verklempt. Excuse me. It it is. It's very sad. And of course, like Kaine, Kaine really freaks out about it because. Yeah, they have that bond. Yeah. And basically the remaining members of the party enter the final room of the Shadow Lord's castle. Where the Shadow Lord... Yeah, after is... Kaine beats the shit out of Nier. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, like, like that, that's her way of dealing with the grief of losing Emil. Like, Nier breaks down into tears, but Kaine's response to grief is always anger. So she just, like, kicks the crap out of Nier for a little while because he's there. And maybe for other reasons, but we'll get into that in later runs. Yeah, totally. Totally. The Shadow Lord's waiting with Yona's still bedridden. Very creepy vibe about the whole situation. Yeah. It, it feel, so on, on Route A, you can't understand anything that the Shadow Lord is saying. So it's just Yona ridden, like laying in this bed while this like creepy 
groaning noise comes out of the Shadow Lord. And mm-hmm. you can tell it's dialogue of some kind, but you don't understand any of it. So it's just, oh, yee, you know? <laughs> yeah, precisely. After, basically, after you do battle with both the Grimoire Noir and the Shadow Lord, and meanwhile, it seems like Grimoire, the Grim. Grimoire of Ice is losing his mind. Yeah, he has been since you came into the Shadow Lord's castle. Yeah, yeah. You basically defeat them, and you're reunited with Yona. But there are complications. Yes. So, do you want to go into the alternative paths and endings. Okay. But before we do that, this is going to be important to the alternate path. So I'm going to go over this really quickly. The, the reunition reuniting brother with Yona comes about after the gestalt version of Yona that the shadow Lord successfully put back into her body is removed by the possessed Yona walking into the sunlight and and then the shadow Lord freaks out in anger and, and attacks you again. It's made clear even in route a that the shadow Lord is Nier's gestalt because the possessed Yona says, Oh brother and starts walking across the room and Nier holds out his hands for her. She just walks right past him. Exactly. And so you're like, Oh, okay. If you haven't gotten it before now, if you haven't put all the pieces together, this spells it out for you that the shadow Lord is near and Mm -hmm. Near is the Shadow Lord. He's just been shadow boxing this whole time, baby. But yeah, Yona, possessed Yona walks into the sunlight because she feels like it's not okay for her to steal somebody else's body, basically. Yeah. Since it's clear that this other Yona also has a consciousness, if not a soul. And that causes the Shadow Lord to go berserk and Near fights and kills him. And then they're reunited. And that's how ending A goes down yeah and afterwards near goes to yona's side and is worried when she's not responding but like he hears grimoire vice's voice come out of nowhere this is something that that vice does a lot in endings he's just like there even though he's sacrificed his physical body but he's magic so i guess that's okay and uh, he tells near that she'll reawaken when Someone says the name of the person she loves most and a, a enter a name screen that looks exactly like the which name would you like to use screen at the very beginning of the game pops up. And of course, you, you must put in Nier's name, whether that is Nier or whatever you named that character, Link or whatever. And once entered correctly, Yona's eyes open and she sees her brother and or father, depending on what version of the game you're playing, for the first time after five years. Mm-hmm. And Kaine's, oh, that's nice, peace, and is taken off. And Nier stops her and, and asks it, like if she wants to stay with them. And she's, nah, I, I got my own shit to take care of. And Yona pulls his attention back. And they're like looking out the window together and it like flashes to uh, a scene of the village and you can tell that it is definitely a flashback like i think that this was a lot more confusing for people who did father near initially because like earlier phase father near and late phase father near don't actually look that 
physically different, but in, in the replicate version, it's very clear that this is a flashback because brother near is a boy again. And so they're back at the village and sitting on a, a, a hill near the house and Yona runs up to near and gives him a lunar tear and they both lay down on the hill and look up at the sky and the scene shifts up and you can see the older Yona and the shadow Lord about to take each other's hands. And then Yona takes hold of and hugs the shadow Lord's arm, hinting that the gestalt versions of Nier and Yona have reunited perhaps in some sort of afterlife or something. Right. Isn't, isn't that nice? Surely that's how this game ends. Unfortunately, at this point, you begin Route B. This is basically like a new game plus where you get more story, which I think mm. is like brilliant, by the way. Route A is a pretty complete video game. If that's all there was, I think you would get to that ending and be like, oh, cool. And the fact that the future routes are basically a new game plus that also give you more story, I think is very neat. I know that that's been around since the beginning with Chrono Trigger, but like still, I, I do think it's neat and I am glad for it. Most and new game you get pluses. Sig- you get significant like extra yes. pieces of story. It's know? important. It, comparing it to Automata, which isn't really that fair, it's a bummer that like mechanically, like the following paths in Automata are significantly different. And it's basically just like the, the routes are like chapters in Automata rather than this is like new ways to experience the same story over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that the gameplay gets a little repetitive in a way that Automata is like uh, kind it, of re- replays don't. It's um, true. That is true. But the, additional story that you're getting is just so compelling that it just keeps you going. Right. This path, the ending B's route and all future routes up to a certain point, at least begin at the point where Kaine was petrified. You start at that exact moment where Emil depetrifies Kaine and uh, Jack of hearts bursts out of the door and you start fighting him. Now, remember I told you guys about how near comments to Vice, it feels like my sword arm is lighter. And I said in Route A, that is in reference to the time gap and how five years have passed. Because this is the moment where the game starts. What that dialogue means on Route B and going forward is, uh, to me at least, it's near commenting on the fact that you've started a new game plus and you're like many levels higher than you should be for this point in the in the story. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And so he's, oh, my, it feels like my sword arm is faster because he's doing like crazy damage to the, this enemy that was like really hard for him previously because he's right. killed the Shadow Lord already. But But yeah, so that's where you pick up with it. And you can now access also like what was DLC in the original game where you enter an alternate universe through one of the like that there's like uh, a sparkle point is just like an interaction. There's just like a thing that you can, it looks like a thing you could pick up basically in Nier's mm-hmm. house. And it turns out it's the diary of Nier's late mother. And in the Gestalt version of the game, it is Nier's late wife. 
and when you I think read in this it, case, it works better that it's the mother, but yeah, this isn't really story based. They're like challenge rooms, so it doesn't matter to me either way. There's no emotional significance tied up in this. It's just like challenge rooms where you can get extra weapons that you're gonna need if you want to do all the routes. But so, like, I, I did them, but I didn't feel anything when I did them other than annoyance when I got killed that one time. <laughs> yeah, but you do get some st- uh, backstory about the trials and tribulations of the mother and whatnot. Yeah, but there, it's basically a poem, and I, I'm not sure exactly what it means. And it didn't, like, like the, this was not laden with great meaning for me, basically. Right. I, I couldn't tell you anything about Nier's mother as a character, you know what I mean? So I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally fair. But yeah, it's like a series of challenge rooms. There's... 15 of them in total and yeah completing this is is will get you certain bonuses the aforementioned weapons and there's also like alternate costumes that you get out of this as well there's reason to do it oh also in the final door so there's three doors with five challenges in each and in the final door there's a segment where you go through the lab segment below emile's mansion but all of the crates are full of like super rare materials for crafting, like upgrading weapons and stuff. You can get like black pearls and like moldavite and gold ore and such. Uh, so it, it can be worth it if you are interested in upgrading the weapons to run that final segment a few times just to get the crafting materials, particularly with stuff like black pearls. It's a pain in the butt to get them from resource points in the world. But yeah, so mostly Route B follows the same plot beats as the original Route A. Certain scenes, however, are very strongly recontextualized with new cutscenes where you learn the motivations of most, I would say most of the main antagonists. BB, the robot in the junk heap. Oh, I don't know that's true. Did I get it <laughs> wrong? I, I figured that he did kill the brother, but no. it was an accident. So, so my my... My understanding of it was that the younger brother actually killed the older brother because you see him like jump over and it's like a metal pipe or some kind of cylindric thing in the factory. And it like knocks over a ton of stuff. And then immediately thereafter, the whole thing comes crashing down and it like crushes the older brother. And then Mm. the younger brother like, spins to see what happened and he just sees the robot standing on the other side you never actually see bb move okay i probably Um, totally miss misread that that's totally fine like like uh it it's it's never like fully explained like you could definitely view it as we have here in the notes that that the robot killed the older brother to try and protect the the child shade that he's been defending who he there's a slightly earlier cutscene where the robot finds him like crying in the maze basically because humans had killed his mother and he's mm-hmm. just i'm scared and alone and i don't know what to do and the robots i'll be your friend and protect you and he's yay yeah that's very sad and there are other examples of this the wolf shade from the desert is furious with humans because they've basically destroyed the environment 
to cause this region to be a desert in the first place. And also the humans have been hunting the wolves. Like it's not enough that they destroyed their environment, but the humans are also killing the wolves because the wolves are a threat to the humans. So that's why, but from the wolves perspective, it's like not only did they completely ruin our home, but they're also killing us and they become desperate and violent as a result of that. And in fact, I believe it is on this run that we discover that warriors of the masked village had set up a slaughter for uh, a great many of the younger wolves in the wolf pack to try to thin the herd before the wedding in an effort to make sure they didn't cause trouble, which Mm. causes the wolves to swear vengeance against Mm. the, the village and ultimately kill Fira. So that definitely did not work the way that those village warriors thought it was going to. (laughs) Best laid plans. Yeah, not so much. So yes, we get a lot of new context with a lot of the, specifically the boss encounters. We find out a lot more about Louise, our mermaid, from the the wreckage of the ship, that the postman and she had a father-daughter relationship prior to us coming in to kill her. And uh, a lot of the reason she was eating all of the humans that she was because that she desperately wanted to turn herself into a human girl so that she could safely live with the postman. This is one of the saddest stories in the game to me. <laughs> I don't it, know why. It's, it's, it, is, it is really sad. It, 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 it has notes that remind me of the opera singer in Automata a little bit. Just that like constant consuming of others to try to like a- achieve this unachievable goal that is like a really simplistic goal that that of just like being normal and loved basically and uh, i saw someone point out the kind of irony that that a shade is eating the bodies of replicants to try to quote unquote become human when a gestalt is a human and a replicant is not yeah yeah, um, but they may yeah. be as confused about this as <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Else. Yeah, and and, it, and it's like the 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 hatred of her own, again. The constant underlying theme of Yoko Taro's writing, right, is about body hatred, and this is another character who finds her body hideous and wants to transform it into something that she finds beautiful. And in fact, when you kill her. She looks out over the sea and remarks how unfortunate it was that she was born into this hideous body, but even in the moments where she's dissolving, remarks about how there's so much beauty in the world. Very good little story. I always quietly say goodbye to her as she dissolves. I don't take it personal that she tried to eat me. And in fact, I believe it is in Route B, where you discover that Kaine had found a final letter that Louise had written for the postman, which is like something that shades are like shades can't speak mm-hmm. a language that replicants can understand. So that they only were able to really communicate with each other through song. Like he could talk to her and she understood the things that he was saying presumably, but they had previously only communicated by singing to each other, really. And and so she'd been like trying to learn to write this whole time. And she finally managed it in like right before her secret was discovered and she was killed. And she had written a single letter 
which ironically delivers to the postman and, and he opens it up and finds that the letter simply says, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is most of the differences in route B. There is also a voice in Kaine's head that we discover that is the voice of the shade that is trying to possess her body. This guy is like a comically evil asshole I know that's the role that he was playing, but <laughs> this is one of the points when the voice it, acting fell flat. I felt he sounded no. like a morning shock jock DJ or something. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He doesn't even sound like he doesn't sound evil. Like, like for example, a grimoire noir sounds like an over-the-top supervillain. I also don't dig the like tone that the voice actor strikes with grimoire noir. I, yeah. I like. I like him much better as Pod 42 in the sequel. But but yeah, the voice in Kaine's head, whose name I can't remember for the life of me right now. Mm-hmm. He does have a name. He just sounds like a dickhead. He's just one of those like people who you can tell was like a, a bully in high school and never really grew out of that. He's that guy. He's yeah. that asshole. And he is constantly like goading Kaine into greater acts of violence and cruelty and basically just mocks anybody who is feeling sad, which is most of the characters most of the time, because this is a near game. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And he's just, oh man, can't you tell the blood? I can't feel the bloodlust, basically. He's just, yeah, he's, I don't know. He's, just, he's a lot to handle. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that guy. There, there's a cool moment towards the the point where you do Shadow Lord's Castle, where Kaine starts telling him off. Which, which also those scenes exist in Route A, but they make no sense. Kaine is just right. like Kaine is just like crazily talking to herself, and I didn't question it because Kaine has gone completely berserk and tried to kill me a few times. So if she wants to talk to herself, that's fine. Like I don't, I'm, I'm not going to judge. But those scenes do make a lot more sense when you can actually hear the voice in her head, and she is actually like standing up to him basically and telling him to fuck off, which is good. She should. He's not good. But so. You go through all the same stuff as far as like the Shadow Lord's Castle in Route B. The only difference is you end up discovering that the bull shade is trying to kill the party because the little like balls of shade that you encountered directly before it were actually shade children, like babies even. Not even children, but like it's implied that they're infants essentially. And you've just been like stomping on babies for a while and didn't know that. Once again, excellent work, Hero. And but other than that, Shuttlelord Castle, pretty the same. Emil's sacrifice and Devil and Popola don't really change at all. And you kill the Shadow Lord just as you did before. And ending B starts with kind of the same thing as ending A. But after right around the point where Replicant Nier defeats Gestalt Nier. And then the scene changes to Gestalt Nier scrunched up and weeping to himself alone in like a white void as he regrets all the hardships he put Yona through. Oh, I guess the, the only other difference that I forgot about is that you can understand what the Shadow Lord is saying this time, but he's saying exactly the things that I imagined he would, like, oh, Yona, don't worry, that like we're finally going to be together again. Which, because I had already put together that the Shadow Lord was Gestalt Nier after 
reading Project Gestalt was exactly what I thought those lines of dialogue were going to be. Yeah, so the Shadow Lord is like weeping about all the hardships he's put Yona through, and a flashback occurs with Yona and himself alone in the grocery store from the beginning, and he tells her that he isn't hungry while Yona tries to force him to eat something which is similar to a scene we see in the intro sequence. And uh, the scene reverts back and images of the enemies, like all the bosses that you kill throughout the game, gaze at Shadow Lord near while he cries to himself. And then Gestalt Yona and her young form comes to greet him and thanks him for always being there with her and shares the cookie with her brother. And then credits roll but that is not the ending of route b because after the credits we see that uh, emil who has survived the blast as a head crash lands in the desert and now just a head rolling through the sand he goes out <laughs> out to search for near and kine bouncing and rolling off into the distance and if you've played automata before and you think this head is the emil that you met on that on uh, uh, in that point, I'm sorry to inform you, no, that is not the same head. <laughs> um, I, I know that would make sense and be easy, but it is not the truth. <laughs> All right, anyway, ending C. <laughs> so, it's, 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 a pretty, it's a pretty wacky ending. It's pretty funny. Yeah, what a weird coda to, to that ending. If I hadn't had the context of knowing that Emil survives anyway, seeing that would have obviously delighted me to no end to know that he made it. But but yeah, so ending C is a continuation of endings A and B. It's This is the run that is like the most the same. This is the most samey, I think. And the one that I had to do twice because I fucked up. <laughs> And yes. Whoops. Locked myself out of getting the weapon because I didn't get it in the forest. I can't remember which weapon. I didn't get mm. it in the forest. And oh, faith. And can, yeah, and then you can buy it in the airy, but but you blew up the airy before you could buy it, up, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So I had to do this one twice, and it's the most most samey to yeah. what's come before. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, the only thing that's added here, so the added context of Route C is that you uh, get a few uh, a few cutscenes with Devil and Popola that you didn't before, where it's just Devil and Popola talking to each other. The And this is actually the part where I get so confused about what Devil and Popola's game is. Yeah. That, that like, before... So it was like, I did not know what their deal was in Route A. I thought I understood completely what their deal was in Route B. And then they start introducing context of Devla and Popola only cutscenes. And suddenly I don't know what their deal is again. Because they're, they by themselves, they talk about how they want to help Replicant Nier. And they want to stop the Shadow Lord. And in fact, they imply at one point that the reason they're keeping Louise around in the shipwreck is if they can't stop the Shadow Lord and Replicant Nier dies, they need a backup plan to kill the Shadow Lord. And right. Louise is their, is their fallback plan, which none of this makes sense to me. Are they helping yeah. the Shadow Lord or not? How can they stop the Shadow Lord and complete Project Gestalt? That doesn't see those seem like contradictory things. I don't know what their plan is 
I'm sure there's somebody in the audience listening to this that is screaming right now. I'm sure too, but I was equally confused because in the early runs, these kind of, these scenes have been omitted. You're just like, Oh, okay. They've just been manipulating near the entire time. Sure. Yeah. That seems to make sense. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. And then all this additional context is added and it's okay. Wow. What the hell was her motivation? Yeah. Yeah. What's your game, twins? What do you want? (laughs) What is the end game that you think you will achieve by putting all of these pieces into play? And and that made me actually start to think about what they could be doing differently in order to achieve their ends. And I'm like, if they just want near to not screw up Project Gestalt, they could just not help him get to the Shadow Lord's castle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and then they wouldn't have to tell him to go home because he wouldn't have gotten in there in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't know what Devil and Popola are about. I really need to do more reading and maybe it will make sense. I don't know. All right, so ending C, you've got the Devil and Popola stuff. That's what's unique. Otherwise, you're basically doing ending B again. How Until you get to the very end. And once you get to the end and... Replicant near kills the Shadow Lord again. It goes to leave, but then she begins to relapse and turn into her shade form. And yeah, she goes full shade form, and that forces near to fight her. And after Kaine is defeated in the, in this case, near hears the voice in Kaine's head, whose name is Tyrane, something like that. I can't remember. He's not important enough for me to actually remember the pronunciation of his name. And he explains that there is a way to save her, and there are two methods for doing this. Number one, he can kill her, which is what Kaine wants. And if if you kill her, then so that, yeah, that's choice one. You're allowed to kill her. Choice two is near sacrificing his entire existence, his history of ever having been, which is physically represented by the player's save data. You have to choose to delete your save data in order to save your friend in your game, which is the most excellent utilization of game mechanics for things they weren't intended for I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's done in a really cool way where, you know, you, you know, they repeat this trick in Automata too, but there's something about it. It, It's the way that's handled in this game. That's really neat and different where all the things that you've collected, all the information, all the files basically start just going blank and dissolving. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just clear that. Yeah. Nier gets snapped basically. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, before that happens, the correct order to do this in for your own sanity is to choose the option to kill Kaine in the first place. And, and I will say there, there are a lot of things throughout the game that indicate that this is actually what Kaine wants you to do. I, I can't remember if she tells you near directly, but she does at one point tell Emil that if she ever goes completely berserk, that she wants Emil to kill her. But obviously Emil's already sacrificed himself and he doesn't have the ability to do that. And it is up to you. The easiest way to handle this as a player is to choose the kill option first. And if you do that, near stabs Kaine and like kisses her and finally ends her pain. And, and, and Tyrone, much like a Grimoire Vice in kind of an out-of-body thing, comes to you and says, 
that Kaine's last words were thank you, and a lunar tear falls next to a distraught ear, and he picks it up and gazes out the window, and then goes home to live with Yona, with both living out their remaining days before they die from the Black Scroll, because, oh yeah, I guess we should mention that the without the shadow lord everyone is going to succumb to the black scroll oops this at this point you move on to ending d which again if you're if you know that this is happening in advance you can set up a save file that is at the last place that you can save and just do the shadow lord's castle again but Mm -hmm. if you're dumb like me you're gonna have to play (laughs) through the whole thing again because when it said do you want to save the game again after seeing credits? I said yes and saved over my previous save, which of course means I now have to play through the whole route again. You don't have to do that if you either say no to saving again or save in a different slot. You can just load the Shadow Lord's Castle, do it again, and pick the other choice, and it all counts. So ending D is exactly the same, except you choose the sacrifice option instead of the kill option. And like we said, when you do that, all of your save data is deleted. Everything dissolves into the nothing. Nier is gone. He just ceases to exist. I I don't even think there's like an animation of him dissolving. He's just gone. And Yona looks up and thanks Kaine for saving her because... Neither Yona nor Kaine remember that Nier ever existed, and a lunar tear falls on the ground, which Kaine picks up, and there's like a sort of look of puzzlement about her face, and uh, while she holds it, she has a flashback of Nier and mentions that it feels like she has found something special, something lost. And if this was the original version of the game, that's how the game ends. However, in the version up that we are playing, there is an ending E. And in order to get ending E, you have to have collected all 33 of the weapons. Yes, you have to, don't don't do Paul did. Make sure you just check the guide before you delete for D, or yeah, for D and, and get all them weapons. Yep. Just do it. So a- ending E continues off of ending D and it's activated by starting a new game. And this always used to happen, but I do think it's a nice touch that if you start that new game and you try to enter the same name that you did before, the game will not let you. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to create a new name. Yeah. And, And because I knew what was going to happen in this ending, I actually named my second version of Nier Kaine for reasons that we will see soon. But all right, it, it's like a fresh new game all the way up to the second fight with Hook. And this can get you because I, I read ahead to see what I had to do. And it said, oh, when you get to the fight with Hook, something will be different. And I didn't want to spoil myself too much, so I didn't look carefully. So I didn't realize it was the second fight. And so I got through the first fight and nothing changed. And I was like, oh no, did did I do it wrong? Do I have to do endings A A through D all over again to try to get E? Uh, Am I screwed? And and I started to resolve myself to that when I did the second hook fight. And okay, we we didn't talk about this the first time. I, I wanted to bring it up, but so that we could do callbacks on this. But so the first time you do this 
second hook fight. She gets injured really badly and Nier runs over to her and basically gives her a pep talk until she comes back to life. Essentially, there's like a literal metaphor of him like reaching into her darkness to pull her out. And in ending E, that same cutscene starts, but when Nier reaches down to pull her out of the darkness, she reaches up to grab his hand and his hand vanishes. And because I wasn't completely sure if I was on ending E path or A, I still like audibly gasped when this happens. And then the real ending E begins where you get a title card that comes up that says three years later and like Kanye wakes up in her shack having had a nightmare about a kid that never existed and she's just not sure what's going on and like one thing leads to another and she ends up being led towards the forest of myth oh by the way you get to play as Kaine now and she's real badass playing as her is very fun and like very empowering in a way that i appreciated a lot this is definitely a point where it makes sense that this is new content. The game plays the most like Automata, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for like, sure. Both in Kaine's fight, fighting style, but also what you're going to find once you <laughs> yeah. go into the tree in the Forest of Myth. It's very much in, like an Automata-type setting. Yeah. So this part of Ending E is based on a short story from grimoire near called the lost world that is basically the story we're about to relate to y'all and it it feels like it was always meant to be a bridge to automata even in the original story but even more so now like all of this stuff is like clearly meant to better bridge the two games together but yeah so it goes to the forest of myth to confront some sort of threat that the village has described to her and ends up going into the tree that that contained those memories before and and inside the tree we find out that it's like biomechanical which was it was implied even in the the death dreams that the tree was like some kind of computer somehow that that was like a database of memories. So we get to see the inside of that database at this point, which we encounter like two figures who are like machine-like and they are voiced by the voice actors who voice 2B and 9S. And they're talking about all kinds of crazy stuff and like attacking, oh yeah, and attacking Kaine with android Kaine clones, which it was is like implied at certain points that A2 was like patterned off of Kaine. There are like hints of that in in Automata, and I see this as further like confirmation of that stuff. I could you totally see that. And at some point in here, my boy Emil comes back now sporting extra arms yeah. <laughs> for no reason. It, it's actually pretty amazing. There's a scene where they're like running along together and he's like, oh, Emil, I, you're alive. And he's, yeah, cool. Let's fight all these robots. And they're like running along together and he's just, hey, Emil. And he's, yeah. And she's like, why do you have extra arms? And, <laughs> and, and he starts to like try to explain it to her. And he's, look, I can't explain it to you right now. Let's talk about it later. So they just keep going like deeper and deeper into the tree where they find themselves in a place that is is 
equally reminiscent of the Shadow Lord's Castle, but also the constructed city that the machines made in near Atomata. Like uh, the doors open to this place. And I remember out loud going, oh my God, because like in my head also, I was like, oh, the like cave that you find that leads to the constructed city in Atomata, that was Sleeping Beauty. It's like the petrified remains of Sleeping Beauty. And Sleeping Beauty is the name of the thinking tree that created the Detrian, by the way. I don't think we ever actually said that. Yeah, and they end up attacking like a memory core that totally looks like an Atomata thing. It's like this like symmetrical, like pale white, like apple store colored cube that there's like a a series of bullet hell things you have to run to get to it it feels very much like the last challenge for attacking the shadow lord again but then like you are pulled into kaine's memories as a result of this and you encounter uh, a, a bunch of holographic kind of looking versions of bosses, but ultimately and most importantly, a reincarnated and much more difficult version of Hook, who it, it looks like Kaine is going to get killed by because she does not have projectile attacks of any kind, and he keeps moving completely out of her range and dealing damage to her and like creating these like these like ghosts of the villagers who say the most horrible stuff to her and it causes like bullet hell bullets to spray out of them. And Kaine starts getting hit and she starts losing like combat effectiveness and kind of a similar way to like when you get infected with the virus in automata and, and then you hear the voice of the grimoire vice say basically get it together hussy and and you're like yeah voice is here yeah and he comes to back kine up and give her projectile abilities so that she can defeat hook and and in doing so she starts like reaching back into her memories to pull near out of the places where he still exists repressed in her mind basically mm-hmm. and and as she's doing it you can hear near yelling at her no don't do it like basically he's saying i sacrificed myself for you don't do this and she says more or less what gives you the right to make that choice about my life it's i did not even think and this may speak to my privilege in that situation. But I did not even think about the fact until I saw this ending that Kaine was essentially denied autonomy. This choice was made for her. And in this new ending E, she's allowed to recover her autonomy through all of this like badass martial arts combat. And then also it like she chooses family over whatever may come and successfully pulls near out of her memories. And this causes the, the sleeping beauty to transform into a gigantic lunar tear that unfurls to reveal the resurrected near being cradled in Kaine's arms as like Emil comes down to be with them again. And that's, that is now officially how near replicant ends. Yep, and I, I think that is a damn good ending. It personally, is. I, I liked the deleted from existence ending. Like it was bittersweet in a way that definitely jives with near. 
but the fact that the new ending E zigs where the old one zags feels really good also in a completely new way. Yeah, I I totally agree. I totally agree. And uh, God, yeah, I, I really love how it like ties things even more directly into Replicant. And, yeah, yeah. Know, it's also just that last scene is very cool. It's like very like surreal and beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's like this giant lunar tear, like growing in the wilderness, like cradling the characters and whatnot. And, and, and it means that basically all of the heroes from near actually survive canonically. Yeah. Assuming, assuming that you take ending E as the canon ending of near replicant, which based on how this has worked in the past, all of the endings are the canon ending. And, and so it does seem like ending E leads to automata though. Maybe because I've seen a lot of confusion online. I want to point this out also. I've seen a lot of confusion online where people think, I, I think because the the two children machines seem similar to the red twins, people think that the machinery that you encounter in Sleeping Beauty is somehow connected to the machines. And it's not at all because that stuff was all brought by the aliens, right? And we don't want to go into that too much, but so that this is clear, this is showing like the genesis of the androids. It has nothing to do with the machines. Totally. In fact, the genesis of the machines comes through BB's story. I don't know if, if you know this or not. Do you know about this? That BB is what gave the machines their initial like spark of sentience. Yes, but I, that sounds familiar, but I think I've forgotten it. It's not too much more complicated than that. In one of the short stories in in uh, Grimoire Nier, it is revealed that BP was not actually killed by Nier, and he eventually puts himself back together, and he goes to explore space like he and his little friend always wanted to. And in that process, he encounters the machines and accidentally gives them the spark that starts them towards the stuff that they do in Automata. So both of the factions are spawned by different plot lines that happen in Replicant. That's really cool. So even though Automata stands on its own and it seems like it's not really that connected to Nier other than a, a cameo appearance from Emil, they're actually pretty deeply connected if you really dig into all the lore stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This new content, notwithstanding, they were already pretty deeply related. Yeah. But this definitely draws like a much more direct line. (laughs) Cool. Is there, do you have any final thoughts or should we just wrap it up here? We've been, I feel like we've been, (laughs) yeah. I don't know if I have much more to add. Just like your options best game of the decade or best game ever. I, I don't know. One of those. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, it's up there it's up there but yeah i didn't expect to fall in love with near as much as i did it is like definitely in my top five video games of all time at this point like it does things that that games just don't do and but also does more with being a game than most games bother to try to do Right. Um, it is a better story told in games and is more game like 
than a lot of games that try to tell a good story. Yeah. And that is the miracle of Nier. Totally. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's a must play. Yeah. That's not obvious. But <laughs> yeah. Us nerding uh, out for sure all this time about this yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I am so glad to have had an opportunity to replay it in a much improved form because it definitely the lack of mechanical annoyance. Oh yeah. Made me enjoy the narrative a lot more. Yeah. Know, just because I didn't. Have yeah. To it's so much like, smoother of a ride now. Yeah. 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 yeah, I didn't have to like, <laughs> really help the game to get to the <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, basically, because you know, yeah, all all of it is the good stuff now. Yeah, you no longer have to be like it's a really good game if you can look around. Dot, you can just go. Yeah, it's a really good game, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is Absolutely. really helpful for getting people to play it. <laughs> Yeah. Totally. How about we wrap up here? Yeah. Is there anything that you want to plug? Before you- I don't really have any plugs. I, I will just say shout outs to my friend Moons, who is the one who got me into playing Nier initially. Me, I played a little bit of Automata beforehand, but it was really talking to him as he was starting his playthrough of Gestalt that convinced me to pick up Replicant, and I'm so glad that I did. And also, I I do really highly recommend, I I know I I mentioned it earlier on, but uh, there's a YouTube channel uh, called Mr. Klemps, and uh, Mr. Klemps's videos on, he has very comprehensive videos, not just on Nier, but also on all of the Drakengard stuff. He has a, a slightly puerile sense of humor, but if you can get around that, like the quality of his videos is like so good for this stuff. And it means that you can find out what happened in Drakengard without playing Drakengard, which is, <laughs> which is yeah. the ideal way to experience that content. Precisely. So yeah. shout outs to Clemps also. Cool. And I'll, if you fire me a fire link over to me, I'll put it in the yeah. show notes. Yeah. As f- far as uh, combo chain stuff goes, yeah, I guess first and foremost, some news going to be some new stuff coming up with uh, the Patreon, which is at uh, Mirror Image Studios. Starting in June, we're going to do a third Patreon exclusive episode every month, and uh, that'll be for five dollar patrons. So, yeah, if you want to get in on that early, check it out. And so that's exciting. And yeah, like any kind of support, like really goes a long way. It's surprisingly uh, expensive <laughs> to uh, <laughs> run a podcast, even a relatively small scale one. So yeah, that's uh, Mirror Image Studios on Patreon. And also, you can follow us on uh, Twitter at Combo Chain FM. You can find us on Facebook. We're on all streaming services. But if you're feeling generous with your time and want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome because a lot of those like kind of third party podcast catchers also pull their data from Apple's API. So 
the higher we're ranked in Apple Podcasts, even if that's not your like number one way of getting podcasts, it definitely helps the podcast get seen by more people. And yeah, so thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for joining me, Alexander. It's been a oh, blast. Absolutely. I mean, uh, a lot of fun. I'll talk about near of any sort all day, every day. Yep. Yep. Yeah, me too. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I even read like a it wasn't amazing, but this like slightly dubious uh, biography of uh, Yoko Taro that was on Kindle <laughs> Unlimited. <laughs> like, Interesting, yeah, yeah. So I'll have to check that too. out. I'm obsessed with this stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, thank you all for listening, and take care. Bye bye.
Chica y ya 